welcome to episode three of our podcast, Rip Rich Pop, Pop movies, movies of a, of a Certain, certain age. age. And today we have a double for you, as promised. It is a crime caper double. Mm -hmm. So we will first of all be looking at Band of Thieves from 1962, mm -hmm. and then we will jump forward to 1965 and Dateline Diamonds. Diamonds. Yes. That's the plan. Mm -hmm. And first of all, we're going to start, as I've said, with Band of Thieves, and I will hand over to Matt for the synopsis. Thank you. Oh, bear in mind, spoilers. So put your fingers in your ears if you don't want to hear it. Absolutely. Absolutely. The tension. The tension. Well, you don't want to spoil what could be a cinema classic. Yeah. So the synopsis is, Mr. Ackerbilk is the leader of a popular prison jazz band, an activity heartily encouraged by the establishment's trad-mad governor. Mm. Upon release and attempting to go straight, the band find work playing at a club owned by shady posho Dandy Derrick, who almost instantly encourages the musicians to resume their life of crime by burgling country estates near the venues of the tour that he has booked for them. However, the plot is uncovered by club hostess Anne, who, it turns out, was an undercover police officer all along. She was a wazza. You ain't take me alive. <laughs> To the delight of the prison governor, the band, along with their new manager, are reincarcerated at the prison in which we first found them, and despite being back behind bars, the band remains successful, Anne and Derek get it on, and Acker gets to play his latest hit on national television. The end. The end. Indeed. So there you go, in a nutshell, you can tell that the plot spoilers are not too bad, because as usual with these movies, <laughs> it's not exactly plot heavy. Not really. Um, Matt, did you like it? I did, actually, yeah. I thought... This was one of those films that was much, much better than it ought to be. Yeah. It was... Uh, I mean, it should have just been a knock-off. It was making the, um, the most of Acker's success. He just had Stranger on the Shore. Yes. Huge hit on both sides of the Atlantic. Mm. It, was an, it got to number two in Britain, but stayed on the charts for 55, 55 weeks. I think it was, yeah. Massive, massive hit. It was the theme tune to a TV series in Britain. Um, yeah, in fact, fact, it was a song he wrote for, initially for his daughter, Jenny. Yes. Uh, and then they asked him to rename it because Stranger on the Shore was the, the TV series that they wanted to use it for, so mm. they did that. But it was also um, the first British number one in the US since Dame Vera Lynn. That's right. Uh, That's back right. In the, many years earlier. Uh, and the only the second of the modern era, so I guess people like Al Bowley had big hits yeah, yeah. Um, and number ones probably before the Billboard started. Yes. But uh, it was a rare success for a British band pre-Beatles yes. British Invasion started. Mm. So, yeah, big record, big record, which made him, I guess, made him a big artist. Yeah, yeah. from coming from nowhere, and we'll talk about it a little bit mm, later. We'll but yeah, his, um, or certainly from in the in the pecking order of the trad jazz scene, mm. um, he it rose into the top very yeah, very quickly. And we'll talk about we'll talk about that yeah, a little bit later. But he, um, but yes, yeah, so. He'd had a massive hit, both sides of the Atlantic, so obviously the main thing to do is cash in, cash in as quickly yeah. as possible and make a movie. And it, there was no need for this movie to be any good. No. Yeah, it could have done, it could have done um, and as we'll see over the course of this series and maybe even the course of this episode, these films were not always made with the greatest dedication or the greatest heart and soul. Mm. But this one, actually for, for a not massively ambitious movie... It does really well. The band themselves acquit themselves really well, I think. Particularly um, Acker himself and the trombone player, whose name is Johnny Mortimer, Jonathan Mortimer. 
yep. who I wasn't sure wasn't an actor drafted in to play the part yeah. of, a, of a member of the band, but it turns out he was actually Acker's regular. Johnny Mortimer, who plays Fingers. Fingers, that's right. In, in, yes. in this. And when you, yeah, discover what very... he, when you discover what he's in prison for, that's <laughs> not... <laughs> well, let's keep it clean. Let's um, keep it clean, yeah. Uh, no, yeah he's, he's very good. Um, uh, he has a dry sense of humour and yeah. really, really good comic timing, as it turns yeah. out. Yeah. Quite a good haircut, actually. Yeah. He's got that sort of suede haircut, is not he? He's quite good. I agree with you. I, I think that the film is more than the sum of its parts, weirdly. Yeah. Uh, and I guess a lot of that depends on the personalities of the band that you're focused on. As we'll learn later in this series, the Beatles were obviously a really good yes. foundation to make a movie around because of their personalities as much as anything else. And I think the personality of Ackerbilk mm. and his band really suits this. Yes. Although you wouldn't describe them as necessarily actors with of great range. No. I don't suppose they ever had the chance to show that. I think Acker was in... Well, we'll come to Acker, but he was, was in more films than this. But mm. uh, he portrays himself very naturally. They come across really yes. naturally. And there's good script. The, the, the pacing is right. The script is snappy where it needs to be. The supporting cast all do an excellent jobs within very their very uh, easily confined roles. Mm. And it's just very pleasant. It's not the stuff of giants. It's not no. going to win any awards. Um, but then yeah. none of these films would have been expected or designed to. But this one, more than quite a lot, would have been an enjoyable visit to the cinema. Yes. Uh, it's definitely more than the sum of its parts for me. Mm. Uh, and mercifully short as well. It's only 66 <laughs> minutes long, which I think is about right yeah. for this kind of a film where it's not plot heavy, where you no. really just want to bash out some tunes and have a good time doing it. Yes. And I think this is that's what this film does really well. It doesn't pretend to be anything above what it needs to be. No. And so it ends up doing everything it does really well and not actually wasting a lot of time building a, a convoluted plot... Uh, and not having too many people doing too much that they're awkward with. Yeah. So the band, the personalities of the band come across really well, very much like the Beatles in their movies. Yes. Ackerbilk, the personalities of the band are just good for this, and everybody comes across well in the film. You, you touched, uh, obviously, on uh, the trombone player, who was mm. a standout, but really everybody has a little chance to shine, and they don't over-egg that. They realise the, the range is probably limited. In fact, Acker himself has only a limited role in it uh, in yeah. terms of the well, speaking and well, the acting. I, was, I mean, I was thinking... Acker's acting. Acker's acting. Um, he, if you didn't know, the way the dialogue's divided up... Yeah. Um, and I wonder if that, there might have been a bit of last-minute divvying up. Um, I would when say I, when so, Arthur yeah. Mullard is sending his message in from the kitchen at the beginning, yeah. and he's... And he's uh, he, and he's uh, get away calling that guy yeah, or whatever yeah. it is he says. And but the first person who speaks is Johnny is, is Jonathan Mortimer. Jonathan Mortimer. Yeah. If you didn't yeah. know any better, you'd assume he was Akin Bill. Absolutely. You know. Jonathan Fingers Mortimer does steal that, and I, I I'm sure that's probably true. They probably did some of the lines and realised actually he's good. Yeah. He's engaging on screen. He does his lines really well. Yeah. Uh, he was definitely the standout actor, mm. uh, and I'd include actor in that. <laughs> um, so I enjoyed it. I've seen it three times now yeah. uh, in my life and I've never regretted any of that time and no. I suppose with this kind of film that's the best thing you yeah, could say about exactly it. I mean I've watched this several times for mm. for research in this yeah. and it's not been a chore 
Yeah. It's been a chore, actually. It's been engaging every time. OK, so let's look at the, um, the cast that we've got here, because mm. there's some interesting people among you. Um, obviously, it's a vehicle for Akka Bilk and his Paramount Jazz Band. Paramount Jazz Band, yeah. Paramount among them. Now, Akka was... Um, he was a, 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 a trad jazz clarinetist, or revivalist trad, mm. whatever you want to call it, and which had been a huge um, and sort of ever-increasing scene since the late 40s, basically since mm. the war. And there'd been... Um, because I think we touched upon it last I think episode. we mentioned Ken Collier yeah, already. Uh, yeah, Ken, this, Ken Collier was the leading scene, light yeah. of a scene that, that... There was general dissatisfaction on all sides, really, of, among younger people, of, um, of where jazz was sitting, sort of during the war and, and immediately afterwards, where you had these dance bands. Mm. And it wasn't exciting enough. It was too staid. It was too middle of the road. I think with all these things, it, what starts out as a youth... Oriented music, which jazz absolutely did. Yeah, roaring twenties, um, it really was. Become it gets taken over and becomes more and more and increasingly refined. Mm. And of course, it's really important. And I know we've touched on this before, and I'm sure we will again. It's really important to know that music at this time was played by trained musicians. Yes. So of course, some of those trained musicians might be young and thrusting and breaking mm. the mold, but the great majority of them will be journeyman musicians who yep. just want to earn a buck or a pound yeah. in, in, in this <laughs> country. And we'll do whatever. To, they'll just be brought in and they're hired hands, good technical players, mm. good readers and whatever. So if the band leader there wants to be super commercial, wants to be hired, um, they will be playing quite staid, very refined versions of this sort of music. They're not going to try and break any mould. No. Um, and that generally always takes them away from youth and towards the mainstream middle of the road, and yeah. everything becomes very middle. Yeah, of the road. and this broke off in two ways after the war. So you had one lot who wanted to um, move the sound forward, and very excited by uh, the musicians coming out like Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, who were founding bebop music, the very modernist style. Um, and then you also had people who also were dissatisfied, but decided their idea was to go back to before, go back to the roots of the music, go back to New Orleans. And that's where you got the likes of Ken Collier and yeah. the people who followed in, in his wake. Um, and Ken, of course, was an absolute stickler for for this. Yeah, for uh, the New for, Orleans. For the New Orleans, New Orleans yeah. I mean, he even thought that Louis Armstrong had sold out when he went to Chicago right, and started giving right. people solos and things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. You know, that, that was, was too much, much that beyond too the pale for Ken Collier. And um, as we mentioned last time, he famously went off to New Orleans, mm. made his way over there, met his heroes. Um, it's a story he's been told many times. Came back and had a band waiting for him that some friends put together, who included, as we said, Chris Barber, Chris yeah. Barber uh, Monty Sunshine and Lonnie Donegan, mm. among others. Um, however, this band had a lot of promise, but um, Ken Collier being the sort of person he was, um, rubbed everyone up the wrong way. Yeah. He it out. Uh, and <laughs> and was basically sacked by his yeah. own band. <laughs> so he was out on his own, and, and that band went on to be led by Chris Barber mm. and went on to begat Lonnie Donegan's career, yeah. which, which changed the face of, of popular music generally, certainly in Britain, especially through the skiffle mm. uh, scene that, mm -hmm. that Collier and, and, and Barber and We Lonnie did talk Donegan, about that, yeah. of course, in the 6-5 special. We did, indeed. So that left Ken Collier without a band, so he puts a, a new group of musicians together, mm. one of whom was a clarinetist from Pensford in Somerset. Which is a beautiful little village, actually. Is it? I've, I've, never driven, been there. I've driven through it because I do quite a lot of work sort of 
that takes me through there. Mm. Uh, and it's a, it's one of, there's so many lovely villages in Somerset on that route down to Chew Valley and, yes, and yes. places like that. And Pensford is one of them. It's a, mm. it's a lovely little place, mm. yeah. Very sleepy. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, most of <laughs> that's the cider for you. Yeah. <laughs> cider and hot weather. Um, and, uh, yeah, and this was Acker Bilk. And he got his first break playing with Ken Collier. Yeah. But once again, the lineup didn't last very long. <laughs> and the band fell apart and um, Acker found himself back in the West Country again. But he, he didn't like London either. No, it wouldn't surprise uh, me I, if he's no, from, no, I know he was a West Country boy through and through, he wasn't didn't, he? Was he, a, he spent that time... So, so Acker Bilk um, was, like many people, he wasn't... A, a full-time musician. He learned to play the clarinet when he was in the doing national service That's in the right. army, um, and he trained as a blacksmith under his dad's yes. tutelage. So it uh, it wasn't a career he necessarily was going into, mm. uh, but obviously he was. Uh, a very talented player and with a very specific style and I think yes. that's what sort of pro projected Acker he had that uh, very rich deep uh, style on the yep. clarinet yep. he could do lots of the pyrotechnics as well the high mm. runs and stuff but it was really that mellifluous yeah. lower, card, lower range yeah. was his signature sound um, and really projected him forward as a, a name clarinetist rather than just a journeyman trad, uh, trad jazz player who could fit into lots of Lineups, it meant, made him a star. Yeah, and um, so he spent several years re-establishing himself in the West Country, mm. around about Bristol and and, and all, yeah. the whole area around here. Because um, we were in the West Country, folks. Just, <laughs> just yeah, so yeah. you know. Um, um, then he went to Germany. He did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He did. He, he did all of that. He, did, he earned his stripes basically, mm. and eventually f felt that the time was right to try his luck in London again. Yeah, and according to. George Melly in his um, his excellent uh, memoir Owning Up, uh, he moved to London and starved. <laughs> did did Ackerbilt and and but he was lucky to fall in with a manager called Peter Leslie, right? Um, who had the brainwave? Who was a great promoter? Yeah, and had the brainwave of presenting Acker, yeah. who was quite an earthy West Country bloke, absolutely. But presenting him with this very formal, uh, you know, image and very distinctive image with the stripy. Um, waistcoats, waistcoats and the, the bowler hat, hat yeah. and the sort of Edwardian kind of yes, Mr. Ackerbilt yes, riverboat sort of stuff yeah the riverboat yeah, image absolutely. Um, Mississippi riverboat thing and that was such a strong image and mm. um, again as Melly says it contrasted with Bilk's sort of earthy West Country persona yeah um, the two things sort of chimed somehow yeah, yeah, yeah. and the public liked him well he was a likeable character he was a good raconteur yep spoke very naturally like he would down at the pub yeah uh, which was a strength really for him there were mm. the, he didn't have his airs and graces but he was eloquent enough to come across to yeah. a, a general audience and to be the sort of character that most people can relate to mm. and would want to spend time with so yeah. he's got that very easy charm about him uh without being a sort of formal raconteur he's very mm. much oh have you heard this one yeah. kind of a fellow, you know? And it's a genuine West Country thing. It's not oh, put yeah. on. Oh, um, and it's because I, I know people. I've got friends who are just like him. Yeah, yeah. Because I've, so I've lived in Somerset for quite a long time yeah. and I know people who are just like him. Same walk and everything. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's but he did natural. need the publicity. Uh, yeah. He did need those those tricks to sort of make a a name for yeah. yourself in those times. In fact, his publicity machine became known as the Bilk Marketing Board. Is that right? <laughs> hey, come on. Come on. Which is, which is a little nugget. <laughs> That's a brilliant thing. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. so, so it really works. And he, and he shot from being sort of 
almost sort of the runt of the litter of that scene. So don't forget that you've got um, George Melly with the Mick Mulligan band. Mm. You've got uh, Chris Barber and all of his sort of multifarious options. Kenny Ball coming through. Kenny Ball coming up. Humphrey Littleton. Mm. You've got a whole big scene, and they're just the tip of the iceberg. There was a a huge amount of bands. I think it was Ackerbilk and and Kenny Ball were the really two big chart people. I mean, Chris Barber was always... uh, a big, big player in this scene and yeah. continue to be so. And up until this day, now, if there are ever revivals of that music and compilations make, Chris Barber forms the backbone of that. Yeah, because he's still with us and he's still still touring now. But in terms of chart success, Ackerbilk and Kenny Ball, Ball were yeah. the top yes. of that, weren't they? And they were happening all at the same time. We're looking at really between about 59 and 62. Yes, they're the peak years of the scene. And it was because of Peter Leslie formalising... Mm. Um, the image of the thing. Prior to that, it was all you look at footage, and it's all sort of scruffy jumpers yeah. and and just ordinary ordinary people without too much Absolutely. money wanting a bit of fun. There's no, gla- there's no glamour to the look at no. all. So they and in fact, distinctly not acquisitive yeah. um, kind of lifestyle and image these people were were living. And it, so it went from being quite an underground thing in sweaty basements and things like that to concert halls yeah. and the top of the charts. And this was the combination of about 10 years bubbling away of a scene mm. that via, particularly via Acker's um, commercial success, became the trad boom of mm. the very early 60s. And it's, it's really uh, important to note that for the music press, this was potentially the next big thing yeah. that was taking over from skiffle, rock and roll, oh. trad. Yeah. Um, and they didn't view anything as really sticking. So they didn't realise yeah. that rock and roll was about to turn into rock. Yeah. And was about... And, and, of course, they didn't see the Beatles around the corner. No. When the Beatles arrived famously, they thought that that sort of music was actually going out of fashion before yeah. it suddenly became huge. And the course of pop music sort of went down that route for quite a long time afterwards. So for the music press, trad jazz was just the next yeah. big thing. Because there was, was Calypso, and yeah. we were talking about the but previous Calypso episode. Calypso, Calypso, Calypso. Was... Yeah, what's going <laughs> to overtake rock and roll? What's yeah. going to be the next thing? Yeah. But rock and roll stuck. But was... they wouldn't have known that at this time. No, And of course, not. as I say, this, the, the, the look was very specific, the Ackerbilt, because Kenny Ball were, were in small suits. He had suits. formal suits. Yeah, they? yeah, they would lounge suits and look very... Uh, early 60s, you know, with the yeah. ties and stuff. They had a very smart look, but it wasn't that riverboat look. That yeah. was really uh, specific to Ackerbilk. So his first hit was Somerset. So that's right. Yeah. So, so, Somerset, so play, on, play on that. And, of course, that was his first hit. And then, across Stranger and the Shore was the really huge hit. Mm. They didn't have that many. Mm. They, had a, they had 10 or so what you would call successful singles, but yeah. very few of those were top ten hits. Yeah. I think there were three yeah, top yeah, ten three hits in the 60s and one, there was one hit later in the 70s. But I think, if anything, Kenny Ball had more yeah. top top ten hits than, than Acker, but there again, ten, Kenny Ball never had a stranger on the shore. No, exactly. That's just uh, one of those one-off things. Things like I Love yeah. You, Samantha, and, and those kind of hits, which were reasonably big, uh, Midnight in Moscow and Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like that. That's the biggest one. Acker certainly had a unique presentation. In fact, in his childhood, he lost two front teeth and he also lost part of one of his fingers. Is that right? Yeah. And he, he whether this is true, I'm sure it is true, actually, because it's all about the way you play. Your embouchure. And how your mouth, your embouchure is. Yeah. Uh, he said it did 
affect his sound. You know, yeah. he, he feels that had he not had those things happen to him, his sound would have been very different. And particularly with one of his playing fingers, mm. I guess the sound it was made, where he was playing on the clarinet would have been further up his finger. Yeah. So he got a different <laughs> fleshy part of his finger. I don't know. I'm not a clarinet player. But mm. obviously these things can have an effect. And he certainly claimed it did. Yeah. yeah. Well, that doesn't surprise me. Because I used to work at the Theatre Royal Bath. Mm. And at that time, a lot of these guys still mm. alive are still touring. And so, you know, you get George Melly would come along, and usually on Sundays. Yeah. And that was always good because he got double time. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> so I used to like that. And, um, and, and a fun crowd who actually want to be there and enjoy it. And, he, mm. and so you had, um, yeah, George Melly would come along, Humphrey Littleton mm. would come along, Kenny Ball... Chris Barber, all these people would come along, including Akko. And, and, and I, was, I was particularly keen to see Chris Barber, and I, I saw them all. I saw them all, and Humphrey Littleton, because Humphrey was still doing... Um, sorry, I haven't a clue on the radio. Right, so he yeah. was still, you know, had a good you know, reputation and uh, think off the back of that, you know, mm. probably stronger than most of his contemporaries. And, he, um, and so when... It might be the double... Because they used to do Humph and Acker tours, where they sort mm. of... They, they tours a pair. Yeah, yeah. They had Humph's band and Acker's band. And... I knew Acker as Mr. Stranger on the Shore, yeah. middle-of-the-road kind of ballad guy. I didn't know anything about his personality um, or any of the, the rest of his output, really. Yeah. Um, and from what I'd read, sort of George Melly talking about him and things like that, I thought he was Mr. Sellout, you know. Until I saw him, and this is towards the end of his career, like early part of this century. Yeah. About 10 years ago, it must have been 10, 10, 15 years ago. And he came on with his band. I think he just walked up the mic and went, Oh, God. <laughs> and so, so, so cheesed off, it. and then they launched into some yeah. really hot, hot jazz, you know. And, yeah. and they were funny, and he was really good in the way he battered with his with his band and and the crew and everything like that. And the audience was really good, yeah. and, I, and I was won over. Yeah, yeah, I was won over. I'm not surprised. I mean, I never saw him live, but um, I I did know a drummer I used to work with in London. Um, who plays quite a lot of Ronnie Scott's George Double, if you're out there. There's a name check for you. Hello, hello. Uh, and George, when he was a student, Ackerbilk was at one of the events that they had. They probably got him as a, a name jazz. Yeah. <laughs> and George is an excellent jazz uh, drummer. And he had a jazz band, which he just started among the students there. And he was talking to Acker. And he said, oh, I've got this band. And he goes, oh, very good, very good. Uh, he said, well, I haven't got a name for the band. Oh, no, no, OK, yeah. He goes, I wonder if you could sort of give yeah. me some advice. Yeah. Oh, right. Decades of experience. So he says, yeah, all right, well, how many of you are there in the band? And he goes, well, there's me, there's one, two, six of us, and uh, uh, and there's me. And it, and he goes, oh, well, how about calling it six plus one, then? He's <laughs> <laughs> like... Okay, yeah, thanks, Akka. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for your years of experience have really paid off. <laughs> Six plus one. So Six that's a golden bit of Akka. Yeah. Lovely performance. He comes off really yeah. well in this. I think the best moment, actually, is when he does the multi-split screen. Oh, song. yeah. All I want to yeah. do is sing. And it's, it has three Akkas. Yeah. And they're interacting with each other. That's right. Talking That's lines and we'll works talk a bit more well. About that in a minute. Yeah, but, and, yeah, but the way he he performs that with yeah. himself, yeah, and the way he double tracks his own voice to respond to what he's just sang, yeah, he does that really well. Yeah, he does. He's got a twinkle in his eye at all yeah, times in the film. Absolutely. In fact, most of Acker's interaction with this film is purely facial. Yeah, he doesn't have many lines. No, it's mainly just his little looks and his little sort yeah. of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. That's going on, which is very much the thing there. But he does well. He mm. does well. He appeared in four 
films that so I read on IMDb. Yeah, around about his time. But this was definitely the by far the most film. prominent yeah. one. I mean, he's in yeah. it's Trad Dad, but they only do one number. Yeah, they they, yeah. they did same line at the yeah, banquet. Yeah, same but I don't. This is the one where yeah they actually base the the film around him. Yeah, um, and just get in on time for the Stranger on the Shore thing. Yeah, I, I think a year later. And well, the music's already moving. A year later, well, don't forget, 1962 was sort of the ultimate year of the trad boom. But later that same year, of course, the Beatles are signed yeah. uh, to Parlophone, yeah. release their first record, and the yeah. whole world changes. In yeah, fact, because yeah. these things are all running neck and neck. I remember George Melly on, on a documentary once talking about, because uh, the Cavern Club in Liverpool mm. began as a, a jazz club, particularly yeah. trad jazz, and, yeah. and, um, and the Beatles and, and the Mersey sound were sort of, a bit odd, a bit against the grain, mm. really, initially. And um, the Beatles used to play in the interval when the likes of the Mick Mulligan band with George Melly yeah. were playing, and um, yeah, presumably all of those guys all passed through there. And uh, George Melly remembers John Lennon going up to him. Uh, this is before the Beatles were famous, and Lennon going up to him and saying, "Well, to the effect of, when are you guys going to pee off? Yeah, it's your, yeah, you've had your go. It's our turn now. We yeah. want something new. We want our music." And the tide was very much about yeah. the change, spearheaded yeah. by the Beatles. Well, I mean, interestingly enough, there are quite a lot of films where you see what are rock and roll bands mm. referenced as jazz bands. Yeah. They do say that quite a lot. They go, oh, what's that? They're in there, they go, oh, it's a jazz band playing mm. in the thing. Or there's a jazz band coming in and then they come in and they're quite clearly a rock and roll band yeah. or a rock band or a pop band. Yeah. They're not a jazz band. So this, the, the music was for quite a long time referenced by a lot of people as jazz music. Anything yeah. that was youth-oriented was jazz music. Yeah. Yeah, because it had been, I guess, for, for many decades. It had decades. been for years. Yeah. I mean, it had and, been and, since the 20s. And, and that carried on for quite a long time. And don't forget, there was, um, in the late 60s, all these sort of out there, increasingly sort of psychedelic and heavy bands playing at, like, the Windsor Jazz and Blues yeah, Festival. Yeah, yeah. It's struggling to contain the genres. Yeah, they know, often uh, reference to... quite a lot. Uh, you know, uh, the drummer uh, is, is a jazz drummer, really. Yeah. And their passion is jazz. I always took that with a pinch of salt. They said it, you know, with the stones and they said it was yeah. cream and everything. Oh, no, his real love was jazz. And sort of look at their career and go, was it? Was it? Uh, But anyway, that's another topic for another day. But, you know, Acker and his whole band do really well. Yeah, so we've mentioned mentioned that. Colin Smith played Flash. Colin Smith, I think, was the trumpet player. Yes. Jonathan Mortimer, we've talked about as fingers. Yeah, but very good. worth backing up. His timing's excellent on it. He's got a really... Uh, droll way of putting stuff yeah. across, uh, sort of withering commentary. Yeah, he's definitely the dominant character yeah. in the screen. There's Ronald Mackay, who's the pianist, the yes. scouser. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, oh, sorry, no, he's not the pianist, is he? He's the drummer. I think so, yeah, yes, yeah, drummer, yeah. Drummer. Uh, there's Roy James as Dippy, Stan Gregg as Haggis, and he's then a one, uh, the double bass player is yeah. hilariously the mole. The and mole. He's called the mole because <laughs> he's always trying to dig his way out of it. You know? And the Sorry. gag, folks, yeah. is that he's got to get out of the tunnel with his great big double bass. So he's always measuring up. You know, I'm doing measuring mine here, by yes, the way. Yes, right, yes. Um, uh, the squares, I look like sort of Ron Moody gone wrong. And, uh, it's interpretive jazz done. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and he's always trying to get his double bass through it. So that's a nice little sight gag that they have uh, in yeah. there. But they, they all do fine. Everybody plays their part. 
all of them have that sort of showiness when they're playing just the right amount of showiness so that it feels natural but that they're trying to engage with the audience so and they look like they want to be there and want to engage in in making the movie yeah yeah, you can tell they're having a good time and that's what it's all about and none of them are left with any moments where you think oh that's a crashing to be at a dialogue or Oh God! Look away. Yeah, so there's yeah. none of that. They they all play the fool. Uh, there are some. There's a moment when the the girls are coming into the nightclub to be hired. Yes. And they're all parading oh, in yeah. front, and all the boys in the band, <laughs> you know, rushing to the door. You know, so to, you yeah, peer around the, <laughs> you know, the the string of heads, top yeah. to bottom, looking out, and it's all very nice. You know, yeah. uh, it's not groundbreaking, but it's all very nicely done. Yeah. So their main co-conspirator in 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 the movie. Um, well, we should first of all mention, I think, the governor. Oh, yes, yes, let's do yeah. him first. Yes, uh, absolutely, sort of yes. Look at it in, in order. So order he, appearance, yeah. A character actor, Jeffrey Sumner. Jeffrey Sumner, yeah. yeah. Yeah, great. He would have been most famous at the time um, for the role of Major Upshot Bagley in the army game, the famous... Yeah, I um, mean, he, he was absolutely that sort of an actor. Major yes. Upshot no, Bagley, Bagley. That is him. He was mustachioed, quite distinguished. I don't know how many majors and figures of light-hearted kindly figures in authority yes. he played but this was right there among those mm-hmm. that he was he, he played in the avengers as general wilmot yes that doesn't surprise so me so <laughs> it, it is there's going to be i'm seeing here he played also as the duke in another thing called pardon the expression yes. so he's he's often in that sort of role i reckon yes yes indeed and he had a he had a a fine career um, certainly around this period, lots of telly, lots of yeah, uh, lo- lots of movies. We uh, saw him in that beer thing. We day, did. We, we saw him in a, in a strange yeah. little Guinness like mini film. Mm. Um, not that we watch too much of this stuff. No, no, not that we. You know, this uh, is, yeah. but it's all worthwhile. You know, it's, it's all. We're not wasting time. This is actually this is proper research. <laughs> we were watching a Guinness. <laughs> promotional thing yeah. from 1967 or something? No, 64. Was it and I'm just looking it up on your... Looks... Um, yeah, was it uh, All in Good Time? It was All in Good Time, yeah. There we go. The, 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 he played the auctioneer yeah. character because it begins so, at an so auction. So 64, I thought it was yeah. late. No, no, 1964. With uh, Richard Briers and a young Jeremy Bullock yeah. and um, Charles Lloyd Pack. And, mm. whole, and it's a strange little movie, uh, well, nice little movie, actually, mm. to, they're basically to promote Guinness yeah. and Guinness products. But it's a nice little what twenty minute, yeah. twenty minute short film that would have been yeah. shown as a part of a a bill of movies around that time, yeah. you know, at your local flea pit. It would have been shown, and, but very nice and a, and a good little good cast actually. Almost everybody in it is oh, it's him off everything, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, everybody oh, in it is yeah, him yeah, off everything. Absolutely. Um, anyway, so but he um, but Sumner also um, appeared in Polanski's Cul de Sac, which uh, I remember seeing okay. the beginning of. Londa. It was one of his first English language films. Um, it was after Repulsion. Right. It was Polanski's English language follow-up to Repulsion. Made it in Britain. Right. With Donald Pleasance and... Is it Francois Dolac? I can't remember. I don't know how to pronounce it. Dolac. Dolac. I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah, um, Francois Dolac. And she... Um, yeah, she was the sister of Catherine Deneuve, who right. previously starred in Repulsion. Right. Uh, with, with, for, for Polanski. Anyway, so he was in that. That's quite an interesting movie. But he's... Um, Jeffrey Sumner, his voice will be known to a whole audience who have no idea who he is. Because in the late 50s, I think in about 1958, he recorded the narration for a stereo 
test album. You know, you could get these albums to test oh, your stereo yeah. equipment. Okay, wow. Called um, called a journey into stereo sound. Right. Yeah. And there was this one track on it called Train Sequence. Yeah. It's 1958, and it's literally just sound effects and things, yeah, yeah. just so you can dig stereo, yeah, yeah, yeah. the stereo sound, which was a new thing. And he begins this track by saying. This is a journey into sound. Of course. Which, which has been yeah, sampled yeah, yeah. by many, many innumerable yeah. times. But, you know, um, well, Eric B and Rakim, Bomb the Bass, Public Enemy, all these hip-hop yeah, artists yeah, yeah. who've almost certainly no idea who Jeffrey, who Jeffrey Summer is, but he is the voice yeah, of this. Yeah. is a journey into sound. Anthrax, even the, the thrash metal Jesus. pioneers, they, uh, they, they used it. <laughs> you know, incredible. Well, they worked with Public Enemy, so it was, yeah. they probably heard it through that. And, uh, and it's been sampled over and over again just that one little quote yeah yeah and he's one of the most sample voices wow in, in modern music Jeffrey Sumner the... I remember all, I've seen because you when you go into record shops and charity records and stuff like yeah, that yeah. you see a lot of those stereo you know people yeah. obviously now going actually do I need this <laughs> and they get rid of the stereo and a lot of those there's a, there's a few of them but they always have a sound wave on the front that's right they always do yeah 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 or sort of montage yeah, thing, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, yeah, a very, very sampled voice. Mm. A very, very sampled no, voice. No, I did not know that. Yeah. And he does a great job in this movie. I yeah, think. he he's sets a... just the right tone. Yeah. Um, I like... He does a hilarious little bit where he's obviously trying to replace Acker. Yes. So uh, Acker's <laughs> left the prison, and so he thinks, right, we'll start up another... And he's uh, just carrying trombone, trombone player he's a, his character, yeah. yeah. A, 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 a talentless trombone player, yeah. but giving it his best shot, and yeah. it's all... Crashing the awful, music, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and of course he loses heart completely until Acker comes back. In fact, he retires, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. He, yeah. yeah, he retires from the prison service, yeah, doesn't yeah, he? But yeah. then stays just yeah. so he can listen to Acker and his band play their music. And of course, hand in hand with him is the Duchess Maudie Edwards. Maudie Edwards, indeed. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Super like, enthusiastic in the sort of uh, Joyce Grenfell mode. You know? It is. It's very much that sort yeah. of role, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and uh, and she she made quite you know lots and lots of movies. Yeah, she was in the Ugly Duckling. Um, with Bernard Breslau, where, Bernard Breslau um, yeah. for Lance Comfort, yeah, who who made this, who produced this movie, yes, um, yeah. and directed. She, yeah, Lance Comfort directed The Ugly Duckling a few yeah. years before, so she turns up in that. Uh, only two can play with Peter Sellers. Well, she, but she'd movie. been going since the thirties, yeah. Uh, you know, and I think her heyday was probably in the forties. I guess so. Yeah. So it, yeah, we're twenty. Yeah, 20 years, years on, on from her heyday. Here. She, she does an, an excellent performance. Here. Oh, she that chimes off really well with. Um, uh, with, with Jeffrey Sumner. Yeah. She it? carried on going to the 70s, Did by she? the way. Yeah, her last thing was Birken Hair. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yes, about the body snatchers. From 72. Aye. From 72. Yeah, no, she. Her first uh, credited thing is The Flying Doctor in 1936. Okay, so a good career. So that's, she's been going a long time. A long time, yeah. Um, I don't think ever as an absolute front line, always as a character no. actor. Yeah. And um, as the bullet-headed chief warder, the severe, oh, yeah. uh, but, but um, comically put upon chief warder, yeah. we've got Michael Peake. Yeah. Um, again, another another character actor. He most chimes with me because around about this period, he turns up in Doctor Who in yeah. William Hartnell's time in an excellent uh, historical story called The Romans. And The Romans is done almost as a farce. Right. Um, and they arrive in sort of Nero's Rome. 
And Michael Peake is there as a character called Tavius, who saves the day for them at the end. Yeah, he's got a good role there. I've not seen an awful lot outside well, of that. Well, it's funny, he will be on Talking Pictures TV uh, a fair <laughs> bit, because he's in the Devil Ship Pirates, he's in the Intelligence Men. Oh, OK. Um, yes, yes. He was also in the Avengers and the Saint, but pretty much everybody, everybody worked every in British every TV at the time, the time yeah. were in Doctor every Who, the Avengers <laughs> and the Saints. <laughs> yes. Uh, he, he was in there, and he was always playing the same sort of character, mm, mm. Uh, because he had that look. He had that very sort of tough... Yeah. Uh, he was a compact, robustly built chap, so he was always playing that sort of character. Yeah. But he's definitely in The Pirates of Blood River. Oh, yes. Yes, um, yes, yes. He was in Benny Hill and Charlie Drake, so they used him in comic because he also had a funny sort of face. Yeah. Citizen James was Sid James. Right, OK, mm-hmm. I had not seen that. Armchair Theatre, he was in. So, he, yeah, he was a good journeyman telly guy. Yeah. Um, as well as making quite a number of feature films. Yeah. Along the way, again, I suspect never in a main role. I don't know no. that for a fact, but I suspect never in a main no. role. He was a He's supporting guy. Character. Supporting guy. But I suppose the next guy who who does the most in it is Jimmy Thompson. Oh yeah, the great performance uh, playing the honourable. Derek Delaney, or yeah. Dandy as he's known, yeah. yeah, who's the posh but shady club owner, yeah. who uh, who takes the band on when they're sort of ostensibly trying to go straight, and then it almost immediately encourages them yeah. back into a life of crime. And I think his is probably the best performance in the whole. Yeah, I know. Movie. He again, he hangs the film together because he takes the narrative along. I haven't seen him in all that much, mm. but he was doing quite a lot. At the time, I definitely remember seeing him in Carry On Cruising. Yes. He was the barman in Carry On Cruising, yes. who's serving up the drinks while uh, while various people wobble in front of him. <laughs> um, and he was very nice in that. And I think he was in Carry On Jack as he, well. He did two or three, didn't he? Yeah, carry he did a, a few carry-ons. Uh, but I do remember him, uh, of course, and most people will remember him, as Pinky and Perky guy. Oh, so yes. in the, yes, the yes, Pinky yes. Perky show, he was the human... So interactive, interactive person, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the one I particularly remember was because, of course, they used to have quite a bit of music on there outside of just Pinky and Perky. Mm. They had Freddie and the Dreamers on in one episode where Freddie and the Dreamers are miniaturised and are performing on a record in the middle of it. They get, <laughs> they get miniaturised yeah, in this yeah. thing. I mean, most of Freddie and the Dreamers' songs are fairly dreadful, but they perform quite a good number called If You've Got a Minute, Baby, yes. on that thing, which is actually one of their better, very much their better moments. Yeah. And Jimmy is doing what he always does, and mm. it's the same sort of persona, which is very perky mm. and what I think he does which would have been a gift for this sort of thing mm. i.e. light entertainment yeah. light comedy and something where you're on a tight budget time wise is he was quick yeah. everything he does he does sharp quick yes. in and out in and out he would have been a very good voiceover artist there's, yeah. there's a lot of voiceover work that happens now and I do some of it myself and I mm. know that one of the critical things particularly when you're doing children's tv is no wasted moments and you've got to speak quicker than you would in normal speech a lot of the time Mm. and there's no rsc stuff here pontificating stuff it's got to be bang in out delivered done and we go home and i think that jimmy thompson delivers this part very much in that fashion his timing is brilliant it's quick timing timing. it's all really really snappy and 
Again, no wastage, which this film's all about no wastage. It's, it's very eco-friendly, this film. Yeah, and he's got some great lines in it. I mean, I, I like the, uh, what's it? I like the idea of promoting you. I also like cash, particularly the untaxable kind. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Someone gave back when the boys a crate of cider, and you know what they're like when they've had a few. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of really nice little uh, sort of thrown-off lines in this, mm. and he has the majority of them, yeah. and he delivers them perfectly with great timing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I guess the, uh, the next most prominent character in it is Getaway, played by Arthur Mullard. Yes. But yeah, and a massively prolific, and he'd been in Hancock, and later on he had uh, he was in the Romany Jones and Yus My Dear and all, all programmes like that. Yeah, hugely prolific. And he has one of the lines in there which is absolutely typifies his, his on-screen persona always, and that's when he goes, We've been Rumble! Scarpa! It gets to the mind all, all yeah. over. Yeah, yeah. yeah hugely prolific. And of course, he had that hit single doing You're the One That oh, I Want. Oh, God, with... Um, it was absolutely painful. Yeah, especially their performance on Top of the Pops. Yeah, it, yeah. one of those jokes that just were, just didn't have quite the legs that it thought it had. No. To, to my mind. It's but Kenny I know Lynch, wasn't it, behind it? Uh, was it Kennedy? Yeah, Kennedy yeah. yeah. So Arthur Mallard and Hilda Baker did You're the One That I Want. And, it, yeah, and their performance on... Uh, Top of the Pops has to be seen to be believed. Yeah, or, no. or ignored, and then you can just sleep yeah, peacefully really, in bed. It's funny for 20 seconds, yeah. and then you just actually want them to stop, and they don't. Yeah. So uh, that's the thing. But obviously, uh, I, I think uh, he, he does his usual thing. We yeah. won't dwell on it too much now. Uh, no, well, he's, oh, yeah, because there's been some... After he died in the mid-'90s, um, there have been some unsavoury revelations about his private life. But we shan't dwell on that Which here. we won't talk... Which, this is not the forum no, to talk no, about no. that, but... Um, uh, out of respect, we won't dwell on him yeah. either. No. So, you know, got to mention, of course, the lovely, beautiful Jennifer Jane. Oh, right, yes. Yeah, who plays Anne, the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who plays the, the, the... Who turns out to be a copper. She does. She's a club hostess who turns yeah. out to be a, a copper. It, it's probably the, the weakest part of the, the whole plot because she gives no real indication of why she would be there. No, indeed. When she first comes <laughs> along, it, it, it is a bit odd. Yeah. Uh, but you forget about that because it yeah. just it's just happens. oh she's a police officer. It all needs along. to happen and it happens. Yes, yeah. but her performance is very good. Yes, it and is. she's got that dry, slightly ironical yeah. edge to her yeah. delivery. Yeah. She's got a slightly cocked eyebrow. Like like all good people who are playing a character role in a in a comic caper, she plays it straight. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. So yes. she lets everything happen around her. She doesn't search for any laughs or anything like that. No. She does her job really, really. Solidly, yeah, yeah. It's a good performance. I mean, she she was prolific at this point, and she was most famous, I guess, prior to this. She played um, in the William Tell TV series oh, right, that had okay. been on the late fifties. She was uh, Hedda Tell. <laughs> she was his wife, so she, <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Tell. She was. She uh, had to tell somebody. She, yeah, she had to tell someone. So the telltale sign, you know. Um, so yeah, she she was probably most famous for that. She'd been in Robin Hood and Sir Lancelot, and those big sort of swashbuckling. Well, she had that sort of thing. Uh, she was in Ivanhoe, the yes. TV series, as a lady. Ella. She was very elegant looking. Yeah, she's working you know, an awful lot around this point. She was in Raising the Wind. Um, oh, right. The year before, which is one of the almost carry-ons, yeah, we yeah. were talking about um, twice around the daffodils. Yes, um, yes. a while back, and uh, and there's also what's the one with the police? Um, which the, the big job. The, the big job. Yeah. So there's job. a few of these people that were made by the carry-on yeah. team with most of the carry-on cast. Yeah. But not don't really fall so into. She the... was never in a carry-on herself. No, she wasn't. Um, uh, but she was in Raising the Wind, which mm. I think is about a music school or something. Right. Which also has Jimmy Thompson in it. Oh. Yeah, okay. he, he shows up in it. 
Yeah. She was in The Saints. Yep. Of she course. Was a Dixon of, <laughs> of Dot Green. Don't think she was in The Avengers, but she was in Adam Adamant. Ah. And also, the year after this, it's a film I watched fairly recently. Mm. Um, she appears. Because um, we mentioned it's Trad Dad uh, mm. just now, which was uh, a pop film, which is directed by Richard Lester, but it was made by Amicus Pictures. Yes. Milton Saboxi and Max Rosenberg, two Americans working in, in Britain. And they were sort of shuffling around for something to find, and eventually their, their main, their default star became the horror movie, and particularly the portmanteau horror movie, oh, right, inspired yeah. by the movie Dead of Night that was made in the 40s. Michael Redgrave and lots of people mm-hmm. in that. So you've got a number of short pieces linked together with an overarching plot. Um, and the following year, Amicus made the first of these, which was Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. Oh, right. Starring Peter Cushing. Incredible cast. You're never going to get in one room, in one train carriage, because also the main linking bits are set on a train. Right. You've got, okay, you've got Peter Cushing. Yeah. Christopher Lee. Of course. Standard. Um, Roy Castle. Oh, wow. Alan Freeman, the DJ. Oh, oh, Alan Fluff Freeman. And Donald Sutherland. Oh, God. A young Donald Sutherland. A young Donald Sutherland, gosh. Um, So, all together in one movie, and and they all... The film breaks off. So, you've got Dr. Terror, played by um, Peter Cushing, who reads all their fortunes. Right. Um, And the final sequence in it uh, is Donald Sutherland's sequence, where he marries a woman who turns out to be a vampire. And, and it's an incredible series. Donald Sutherland, just, just looking at the rest of the movie, his style of acting he's, uh, is a real method style of acting, and you can really see the tide changing yeah, in yeah. that movie compared to the, the very good acting of the likes of um, Christopher Lee yeah. and, and, um, and Peter Cushing. Of course, yeah. Magnificent, but, very but different. a different style. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and the woman who plays his wife, who turns out to be a vampire, is Jennifer Jane. Oh, right, okay. And she plays it. And it's an, it's an excellent sequence in a very good movie. It's, it's well worth a watch if you've not seen okay, it. No, it's I haven't a, seen it. It's a very good... And, and began Amicus's run of portmanteau movies. They made about six or seven. It won't be the last mentioned, by the way, of Donald Sutherland in this... No, it will not. It so will we'll not. come to that in a little while. Yes. She was in Zed Cars. She was in yep. Man in a Suitcase. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah. Good, she was very um, good. Yeah. And, and as the acting sort of dried up by the end of the 60s, she turned to writing. And pseudonymously wrote a couple of sort of semi-horror films. She wrote Son of Dracula, which stars... I've not seen, which stars Ringo Starr and Harry Nilsson. (laughs) I think it's got Freddie Jones in it, directed by Freddie Francis. Freddie Jones. Yeah. It's quite hard to get hold of. I think probably the Beatles people... I think it was an Apple movie, so I think the Beatles people have put in a a lid on that. Um, But she wrote the script for that, and it was directed by Freddie Francis, who directed her in Doctor Terror. Okay, But... A film that is very good is, um, this is under the name Jay Fairbank, she wrote this, a film called Tales That Witness Madness, that if you didn't know any better, you'd think was an amicus portmanteau movie. Okay. It's made about, um, when was it, very early 70s, about 71, 72? Made by a company called World Film Services. Okay. But if you didn't know any better, you'd think, you'd it, think was it, was an, it was an amicus. It's done exactly in their style. And it's, it's a great movie. It's got um, Donald Pleasance and Jack Hawkins do the oh, Lincoln okay. bits. It's Jack Hawkins' final film, actually. Yeah, Charles Gray dubbed his voice. Is he? Oh, it was, uh, his after oh, he had his Charles Gray. Yeah, yeah. and Charles Gray. So he talks like that throughout the film. Um, Charles Gray's excellent. Yeah. But it's got a brilliant cast in the various different bits. It's got Donald Houston, Georgia Brown, uh, who, play, who played Brown. Nancy in in, yeah, yeah, in the Olive on stage. Susie Kendall, who um, made lots of films, but was also married to Dudley Moore. 
okay. around about this period. Michael Jason and Joan Collins. Michael Jason. That's a brilliant bit with the with the with the tree mm. and Joan Collins. Brilliant bit. And Mary Tam, a young Mary Tam. Okay. And Kim Novak. Oh, um, wow, okay, a bit of American glamour on top yeah, of that. Yeah, um, it was meant to be uh, Rita Hayworth, but it was when she was falling ill, so they, okay. I think she did it. Gosh, both of those would have been, so both of those would have been more in their advanced yeah. periods of their careers, yeah. actually. Both Kim Novak and particularly Rita Hayworth, yeah. that would have been. But she wasn't well, I think she was, mm. uh, 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 and she did actually start making the movie, but they realised she couldn't cut it and got mm. Kim Novak in instead. Jennifer Jane wrote that under the name J. Fairbank. I, I saw... Jennifer Jane appeared again. This is all talking pictures <laughs> in the Medusa Touch uh, with Richard Burton in, the, in yeah. the later in the later seventies. Yeah. But I don't think she was doing a lot of acting then. She was probably yeah. doing other things, as you say, maybe some writing. Yeah. Anyway, solid performance from from Jennifer Jane. Yes. Um, I think probably the last cast member to mention is Carol Dean. Yes. Who is featured in one song yeah. in the film. Uh, singing a little trad jazz, or I forget what it was, but it it's was called just kisses or something. It's something about kisses. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, because kisses. there's a rather <laughs> uncomfortable <laughs> sort yeah. of uh, yeah. of Acker kissing her while she's yeah, singing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Acker was only a thing about thirty-two when he, he wrote was, this. He was, but he he looks older than that. Uh, with all due respect uh, yeah. to Acker, okay. in it, I think it's partly down to the facial hair and uh, yeah. all that, and the basic look that yeah. he's got there is not a youth-oriented look. And definitely, Acker looks too old to be smooching she, Carol Dean. Yeah, she was, what, 17, oh, I think, when they made yeah, that, I think, yeah. So. yeah <laughs> she just literally, yeah. uh, you know, come out of school and come yeah. onto stage. But Carol Dean had a brief... Around um, about this time, she career. had some chart hits. Oh, well, I said she had a brief career. She had a longer career than that, but a little bit of chart presence. Mm. Never a top ten. No. Um, but she had a... A few hits at around this time. Yeah. The first of them was called Norman. That's right, written by uh, John D. Loudermilk, oh, who wrote yeah. Tobacco yeah. Road. And he was also the cousin of uh, the Louvin brothers. Oh, was he? Because their real name was Loudermilk. Not oh, I did not yeah. know that they were Louvin brothers. Okay, they were great, great duo, the precursors to the Everly brothers. Yes. Really, or one of the big influences on the Everly brothers was Louvin. But John mm. D. Loudermilk, he wrote a lovely um, song for, for Bobby V. Um, well, it wasn't a lovely song. It was a good character song <laughs> called Staying In for Bobby V, which has one of my favourite lines in pop music in, which is, um, he was saying things that were not true about her, so I let him have it in the cafeteria. <laughs> <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's a corker. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, right, I didn't know you wrote Norman for her. Yeah. Johnny Get Angry went to yeah. number 32 in uh, the, the same year. This was 1962, yeah. so this is the year of Band of Thieves. Yeah, but the... and that, that was co-written by Hal David. Oh, was it? Yeah, lyrics by Hal David. Um, and then there was something that brings us right round to this series that we're making, and that is Some People, the, the song Some People. Oh, yeah. Uh, was Carol Dean's uh, hit, in uh, went to number 25, also right? in 1962. Some People comes out the actual movie entitled Some People, and mm. Angela Douglas mimes to the song of Some People, mm. but it was, in fact, first of all, a hit for Carol Dean. Mm. She's perfectly pleasant, um, but unremarkable yeah, in my just opinion. Well, she doesn't really have any acting to do, she just turns oh, up no, and does no, that one song. She sings a song, uh, but I think she song. was a, a, a really a journeyman singer, carried yeah. on going, carried on releasing records into the 70s. But yeah. I think her really... career was interrupted. She had a car accident in the mid-60s that sort mm. of stalled her career a bit. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's innocuous really... stuff. But She's fine. Perfectly She's fine. Pleasant. Absolutely perfectly fine. Pleasant. 
Absolutely fine. Yeah. So yeah. that's basically it. I mean, there's a couple of other people. There's uh, Totty Truman Taylor shows up. Uh, Totty Truman, Totty Truman Taylor. Taylor, who was a regular in Hancock and uh, sort of another character actress. Yeah. She had a. Um, she's billed as woman. She's billed as woman, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and. Um, do we mention turning up in it, showing his face as he often did? I think we, I think we, we can mention because the musical director, yes, was the ubiquitous Mor Norrie Paramore. Norrie Paramore, yeah. folks, yeah, who always liked to get his uh, face Mom. on screen if he, if he ever if ever he could, and and, and he because he was the guy he was the main guy in the early sixties. Yeah. Uh, he was the big pop producer yeah. on Columbia Records for EMI. And um, and the guy that, as we mentioned, George Martin envied, envied and eventually trounced. The jewel in his crown, of course, was uh, Cliff Richard. Yes. Uh, but it, he was by no means the only... I mean, he had so many hits with so many different artists. Yeah. He had his screen face. Yeah. So whenever he does put his mug on screen, he's always more or less doing the same thing, sitting mm. around with a sort of... Smile on his face, but, but not. To, he's got exactly the same look in virtually all his screen appearances, and I find that he's normally flanked by one or maybe two youngish ladies. <laughs> I'll say no more than that. No, indeed, no, indeed. Yeah, so he plays Victor Henry of Jazz Records. Yes, in the thing, and uh, not jazz magazines. Not jazz magazines. No, they're very different. Need a kettle for those. Charmaine Innes plays uh, Mrs. Van Der Ness, who's the last right. victim of the raids. Yes. And she does a nice little turn. Yeah. Drunken, the drunken lush host. That's right. Yeah. Who uh, takes a fancy to, to Jimmy Thompson, the yeah. younger bit of stuff. Yes. Um, and he inveigles his way into her bedroom, in fact, where he does what well, I, I, again, beautifully does an amusing uh, attempt to try and find the safe by looking that's, behind each picture. That's right. Occupy, you know? <laughs> it's a <laughs> really good yeah, 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 he's charming in it, he really is. But And she is, she does a great little turn there. Yeah, nice well. little turn. Yeah, nice it's little a turn. short little bit. She started out in the 40s, carried on going till the end of the 60s. She does a nice, nice, nice turn. Nice, nice turn. Yeah. Yeah. Again, yeah. nobody in the cast lets him down. Uh, You've got the moment, of course, where uh, Arthur Mullard is has got his uh, brow-beating oh, wife. Oh, the, the, the shrewish thick yeah, wife yeah, yeah. that he just silently, uh, yeah. <laughs> silently takes. That's a nice little bit. So, of just, yeah, she she has a nice, uh, nice moment of cajoling Arthur Mullard. So let's get on to let's the... get on to the uh, producer first and foremost. You yeah. mentioned him earlier. Yeah, Lance Comfort mm. produced this. He was kind of the king of the British B movie. Yeah. Um, Never anything massively like famous. Mm. No top draw movies, and not even the sort of B movie that is well remembered nowadays. A lot of the time, but he he did he form in music movies as well. Yeah, he, he did. Yes, yeah. well, and particularly latterly. I mean, he he he'd been working since the forties, and an early um, significant one was Old Mother Riley Detective, the Arthur Luke and Old Mother Riley yeah. movies. Oh, he God. did that, but yeah, towards towards the end, he started getting into sort of um, groovier movies. He made. The Ugly Duckling for for, for Hammer with Bernard Breslau, mm. uh, which is quite a good take on um, not what's an amusing take on the Jekyll and Hyde yes. thing with uh, John Pertwee. Isn't John it, as Pertwee well? does a nice turn, yeah, yeah. as the as the uh, the brother, the brother, brother. Uh, and the conductor, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and because uh, that's all about sort of jazz bands and uh, dance halls and stuff. It, well, it, has, it, it features all... the Ted Heath. That's right. 
uh, orchestra, orchestra in that uh, yeah. very heavily. Yeah. yeah, so it's got it's got one of the together. many and films of this era to feature the Teddy. Teddy. Yeah, we'll see him again. Yeah, and um, and Reginald Beckwith is in it as well. Reginald lovely, Beckwith. lovely. Yeah, Reginald he Beckwith. does his um, usual brilliant turn. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so he made that, and that's a nice one. He made that for Hammer. Did uh, last cover, but then yeah, he d- he d- he does seem to have decided that music movies are are where it's at. Lucrative. Yeah, probably, yeah. Because he makes in 61, the year before this, he made the movie Ragdoll with Jess Conrad. Right. Uh, uh, Which almost sort of, that's another sort of pop and cop or sort of crime based uh, music movie. Um, and then he goes on to make uh, Live It Up and Be My Guest. Yeah. Directs which those two. we'll definitely both be featured we'll be quite soon, uh, I think. Maybe in a double bill on, the, on yes. this. We were going to do them on a double, yeah. aren't we? With um, the likes of David Hemmings and Steve Marriott yeah. in both movies. Yeah, David Hemmings, yeah. Absolutely. And, and yeah. Steve Marriott before he was a pop star. And David Hemmings, of course, who also features heavily in Some, Some people. people. That's right. Uh, it all ties together, yeah. folks. It all ties together. So he produced this. Uh, Lance Comfort. It was for Filmvale. I don't know if he ran it. It's a film company called Filmvale. Yeah, Film and this, Vail. as far as yeah. I can tell, is their only movie. Yeah, uh, it's not movie. a company that I'm familiar with. Um, no. So, but it comes in nice and heavy at the start of the movie. For this is a Filmvale. Well, yeah, <laughs> maybe he meant it to be something. Yeah, yeah. But he doesn't direct it unusually. But he directed most of the films that he made. Lance Comfort. Mm. In this case, it's directed by. Now, uh, forgive me. Uh, if I pronounce this yeah, wrong. I thought I'd leave this bit to you. There's a, well, yeah. yes, that's Division of Labour. You yeah, see, I'll get, I'll yeah, get it difficult. Yeah. So it's Peter Bezensenet. Be- yeah, Peter Bezensenet? Yeah, Peter Bezensenet is the best yeah, that's uh, the way pronunciation I, I can <laughs> That's the way I said it. Um, and he had, um, a bit like uh, Alfred Shaughnessy with um, yeah. uh, with Six Five Special Movie, yeah. he was mostly famous for uh, in other capacities in, yes. in, the, in the film world. Yeah. Uh, in Peter Ben Bezenet's case, I put my teeth in. Um, he was a film editor, yeah, and and worked quite prolifically there. Um, notable ones being the shit that died of shame mm. for Basil Dearden, uh, with a great cast: Richard Attenborough, George Baker, Bill Owen. Um, yeah, really good. Yeah, um, yeah, decent movie. That decent movie. That was from the mid fifties, fifty five. That was it. And then in fifty nine, and tying in a bit clo- mm. more closely to this. He edited Tommy the Toreador yeah. with Tommy Steele, one yeah. of his early uh, earlier movies. Well, yeah, yeah, I suppose earlier. Yeah, yeah. Does absolutely. it fit in with his pop phase? I yes, guess? it's his yeah. pop phase. Absolutely. Well, yeah. it's actually uh, uh, transitional, if that's a word I can <laughs> use safely uh, in any environment right now. Um, so it starts to feature songs like Little White Bull which are yeah. now moving towards the the theatre side yes, of things yes. rather than the rock and roll side but it still comes in with him as a, a, on the footing of a rock and roll performer yeah. but it's really starting uh, to move yeah, into it the starts world. to move into the half a sixpence uh, territory era yeah. yeah yeah so um so that's uh, and he, Peter's peasants and yeah. um didn't do it too many. Five, five. Yeah, films, five films according to IMDb. Uh, yeah, um, none of which I've heard of apart from this. No, in yeah, fact, four feature films and one TV series, The Pursuers. Yes, and this is the only one I've yeah, seen I've never, or I've heard not of. seen any of them. No. Yeah, but on a different level, the director of photography on this movie. Yeah, wow. None okay. other, none other than Nicholas Roig. Yeah, who, through the sixties, became. And this is sort of towards the beginning of his his career as a director of photography. Mm. Um, a hugely prolific career of cinema. If he was only a cinematographer, mm. we'd remember him as one of the greats. Almost there as a rival yeah. Douglas Slocum. And he, and he made some 
really good movies through the 60s. And 64, he made Mask of the Red Death with Roger Corman. He shot that, well, which was it, made in Britain. It's important to note that David Lean hired him for Lawrence of Arabia. Did he? So he, he, did, he, he did Lawrence of Arabia with David Lean. Yep. And then David Lean hired him again for Dr. Shivago, because he was so impressed with his work. He hired him for Dr. Shivago in 65. But they had a falling out. Uh, because by that time... So you can imagine Roeg had learnt his stripes, so he'd become a brilliant cinematographer, yeah. as we say, you know, maybe potentially a forward rival to Slocum. Mm. But he had very specific views on what he wanted to yes. do with it. And those views clashed with David Lean's yeah. during Dr. Shivago to such a, a, an extent that he did actually fire him yeah. from Dr. Shivago. <laughs> yeah. So but he, he, didn't, he didn't, in the end, complete, uh, the complete that. And Freddie Young... Came oh in, yeah, well, who was also, also absolutely yeah. right at the top, yeah. completed the movie and actually was given the sole credit for him. So they must yeah. have had a big fall. Yeah, I think it probably. But, uh, yeah. You can but, see in the later work and the way that Roeg does his narrative and the way he puts things together in this sort of haphazard fashion. Yeah, that it's very different. As he's a very different sort of storyteller to David Lean. Both yeah. brilliant, but Lean very much in a classic style. Yes, Roeg, in yeah, that fragmented stuff. Very because fragmented because stuff. he carried on because it well it didn't hold him back being fired by David Lean. Obviously, didn't no, hold him no, back too much because no. the next film he made well in '66 he makes Fahrenheit 451 yep. with Faso Truffaut and also Julie Christie who'd featured in um, George Chicago with the Far from the Madding Crowd. Yeah, uh, and um, yeah, then he went on to make Far from the Madding Crowd for John Sessinger. Also had Julie Christie, Terence Stamp, Alan Bates, yeah. and then he worked around that time. He also worked twice with Dick Lester. Yeah. Funny enough, he did... Funny thing happened on the way to the forum in 66. Oh, did he do that as well? Yeah. I didn't know that. No. And a film that I've not seen, a, a slightly more obscure movie in Dick Lester's um, album yes. called Petulia. And I think a little off the beaten track for him yeah. as well, because... With uh, Julie Christie again. Yeah, I think it was one of his more um, thought-provoking... Yeah, one of the more serious entries movies. ...entries yeah. rather than the comedy that Dick Lester, certainly in this period and in the years that followed in the 70s, was known for a lot of knockabout. Yeah. sort of comedy, particularly The Three Musketeers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Flash... Flashman. ...film. So, uh, that sort of thing. But I think this one was a little more serious. And, of course, his style... Roeg was perfect for that. Because yes. both of them wanted to tell the narrative in the, that fragmented way, yes. topsy-turvy, leaving the viewer to really have to engage and make decisions on the spin... Yes. So that's what his filmmaking did so much was the you couldn't sit back and just sort of let it come to you, and you certainly couldn't go out and make a cup of tea and expect to come back. Uh, what, yeah, and know what was going on. I've, I've watched seven of his films all the way through, and still yeah, don't know, still what's, gonna, know what's, be, what's going on. Because uh, from that point, he becomes in '68 as well. He gets his first director credit, yeah. which is co-directing the movie Performance, Performance which he also yeah. shot. Yeah. Um, with Mick Jagger and James Fox yeah. and Anita Palumbo. And of course, one of the, the things that we notice in this is Roeg works with music people quite a lot. Yes, he does. Yeah. So obviously we're talking about him in a mu music film, in Band of Thieves, yeah. but it's by no means the only time he does. And of course no. he works with uh, Mick Jagger um, yeah. in performance. That's right, yeah, yeah, Mick Jagger in performance. He later works with Art Garfunkel. That's right, in Bad Timing. Bowie, of course, Bowie, in Man of Feltsworth. Yeah. Probably Bowie's best movie oh, and probably without, the best without yeah. any. and also in music terms he co-directed and shot Glastonbury Fair which was a film of the 1971 Glastonbury yeah. festival which is well worth a watch yeah uh, some really good 
really good uh, footage he, he of that. liked to work with music people he was a big music fan he was a big music person yeah so. and like I say very distinctive fragmented and often quite controversial Stunner. No, bad time is very controversial. Well, well all, I mean, well, performance I mean, in itself was held back, wasn't for it? For two years. It made in 68. Yeah. It didn't come out yeah. until 1970. Yeah. Because, well, we'll talk about this. Yeah, we, we will. We will be doing this doing in a few episodes. Time. In fact, that's in our in first a few episodes time. So we won't talk about it too much. Yeah, but, no. but, yeah, it was held back. Uh, but he also made Walkabout, of course, famously with Jenny Walkabout Agatha. Walkabout was a really atmospheric film. Uh, yeah. Massively atmospheric. Uh, it was his own son was playing. That's right, played the little boy in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jenny Agatha. Yeah. There was always an element of unease yes during his films and this really yeah, starts really it off there's you just you, there's tension that he creates in his cinematography in the way he does his narrative mm. and in the silences that he leaves in yeah there's um, almost no dialogue in yeah in there really is and there's a lot of tension in it and he carries that on in don't look now yeah don't look now with the again julie christie uh, again, again and julie donald Chris sutherland, who we, donald just sutherland who we mentioned earlier um, and there's that tension that it creates. Now, don't look now, of course, um, and Walkabout are both regarded as British cinema classics. Yes. As is performance. Mm -hmm. um, so all of those at this point, so this is between 68 and 73. Yeah. Uh, is, he's making really groundbreaking films. And I think Don't Look Now probably epitomises them as as much as anything else yes. regarded as one of the horror classics yes and the tension in it is unbearable you yes. know it, it was one of those films that when you see it you never forget you never quite the same <laughs> yeah afterwards. no they, they i find all of his films quite unsettling i remember seeing walkabout when i was when i was probably a bit slightly too young to yeah, yeah. to have watched it although seeing jenny agatha well, yeah. but, <laughs> but, uh, well, yes, yes. swimming yeah. uh, yes uh, but he um but that is a still an unsettling film because yeah. of that fragmentary style yeah. and the way he quietly ratchets the tension yeah. um, in them. And they're, they're all odd and they're, they're sort of unsettling and often sexually frank. I mean, there's the, um, well, there's the famous sex, sex scene, scene in yeah. Don't Look Now, a lot of nudity in Manifel to Worth. I've not seen Bad Timing, but I know there's some points in that yeah. that are well, uncomfortable. Interesting enough with that sex scene in, in Don't Look Now, they say that the... the and performance. Uh, it, it was done deliberately with them you know them dressing mm. and then you know those, those yes. interspersed shots of them dressing yeah. while the sex dressing sex, um to for the censors but whether that's true or not I it's an absolutely so. no. genius bit of directing i don't think so i think that I was just him so. playing with his uh, play, playing with the time i think so frame. because i don't think there's any way and to show their relationship yeah i don't think there's any way that that would have dumbed it down for the censors at all no. because if anything the sort of uh, um uh, disconnected, the disconnection of them dressing quietly and silently, and and on their own, they're very much mm. in their own world at that point. Because of course, the whole film is about their grief. Yes, um, and you can see they're having this together moment, but then they're immediately yeah. apart, dressing mm. by themselves and in their own private thoughts. Yeah, and it strips the joy out of the sex scene as well yes. by doing that as well. It's, it's brilliant direction. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there's no, I'm sure it wasn't done for the censors. It didn't make any sense at all. No, but it does show just how fantastic his ideas were. Yeah. A uh, great. And one of the, one of the key directors of his era, Absolutely. one of the key directors of his era. Yeah, very good. He, so died, in, he died about a year or so ago. So in this, he's just framing yeah. these. He's, he's yeah. doing. He's, he just he's making but, the shots. But he does, and he's not. He's not tearing up the rule book by any means no. in this film. But he does a very good yeah. job. And 
I particularly think the scenes when there's music playing. Yeah. The, the music scenes in it. Again, he's not he's not tearing up the rule book. He's not doing anything massively fancy, but it just works. There's a but pace. They have the there's a pace in the rhythm too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's the that's the most. That's where he really earns his stripes yeah. in the movie. Is the split screen thing. All I want to do is yeah. sing. Yeah. With ac with multiple actors. Yeah, multiple. Actors. <laughs> <laughs> was one enough. Another bad case oh, of the multiple actors. Don't oh. well, give me some ointment. But a, oh, um, painful that one. But uh, but no, and he does a great job. And yeah, and he just does a very good job. And and um, we've seen. I mean, we have seen in Six Fast Special, and maybe we'll see in another film later in this very episode if the cinematographer isn't on top of yeah. of his game. Yeah, I mean, it's all it's all as it should be, and good cinematography is not you. You don't necessarily come out of every film going yeah. that was great cinematography, yeah. and particularly in a film like Band of Thieves, where there are no sweeping shots, there are no, no great landscapes, no. there are no. Um, torrid scenes like we've just discussed in yeah. Don't Look Now, there are no moments like that. No. It's a frothy little feel-good caper that's, you're not going to go out and go, oh, bloody great, cinematography. <laughs> that. Um, but good cinematographers in films like these may do contribute to the overall feeling of the movie being a pleasant diversion. Yes. Because nothing jumps out at you and says... Why are their feet not in that shot? Yeah. <laughs> why? Why can't I see that? Yeah. Or why is that? You know, well, why is the camera on his nose? Well, you know, what's what's going wrong with this bit of film? And good cinematography, as this was, you just don't even think about it. So it's not no. mentioned, not thought about, nothing. No, no, that's great, and uh, just great job in the beginning of a magnificent career. Yeah, I mean, a, a luminary, and it, uh, whether they got him because they cared or whether they just lucked out, we'll yeah. never know. But what it does do is it adds to the overall impression that the people who were making this film, when they made it, they wanted to do a solid job. Mm. They didn't necessarily just want to cut corners and just get anybody to do it. They, they oh yeah, he's a good guy, get him yeah. on in it and then yeah. it'll, it'll be all right. And everybody, everybody in this film does their job well. Yeah. And the script uh, here... Yeah, the rather sharp and quite a funny script. script. Decent, it's a decent script. Yeah, is by um, uh, a man I believe called Lynn Fairhurst, um, who had his own program, I think, on the radio called Movie Go Round. But wrote several films in this style. He also wrote Live It Up and Be My Guest, yeah, which we've already talked about. Yeah, yeah. and um, the story was by Harold Champan, a guy called Harold Champan, who will come to who will come to again in a moment when we talk about Dateline Diamonds. Mm. Mm. Um, so, yeah, and a, a fine script, actually. Yeah, well, there's for, some lovely little lines. I remember, yeah. they, they, uh, again, Arthur Murad, when he's talking about uh, how long has he been in, he says, <laughs> Well, I came in the day they started filming Cleopatra. Because <laughs> <laughs> that famously so, took yeah, forever to make the film yeah. Cleopatra. Yeah, yeah and um, yeah, the Valparnell of the prisons. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's sharp and it's it's quick. And one point, somebody goes, "Well, threes into seven won't go," and he, and Ackerbill goes, "Don't you believe it, mate?" Just, <laughs> so he gets the tone right for, again for the protagonists that he's got involved in it, and it, it's very nice. Yeah. It's very nice. Oh yeah, what was it? My late husband gave me this little bauble. He was in canned meat, you know. Between you and me, that's what killed him. Over work, <laughs> food poisoning. <laughs> and, um, it's a nice little yeah. one-liners, and and uh, obviously. Hinges a lot on the performers. 
No, um, but giving him like a... all good writers, he works with the performers he's got yeah. and he gives them the right sort of voice. Yeah. And they haven't all got the same voice. No, so indeed. Jimmy Thompson's quick one-liners are different to Arthur Mollard's lugubrious one-liners. So he does that and Acker's sort of, you know, don't you believe it, mate. Yeah. You know, that, that is very much in his idiom. Yeah. So he, he does know how to write. Yeah. So one of my favourite lines from the piece is this dusky maiden coming down the stairs and uh, Jimmy Thompson, who's clearly got an eye for the ladies in this movie, mm -hmm. goes over to her and asks if she's from Portugal, at which point she replies, Do you know, everybody takes me for Portuguese, but I come from West Bromwich, really. <laughs> to which Jimmy Thompson says, Well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> it's a really good indication of, of the sort of quick uh, and inoffensive and nice uh, scripting in this yeah. from uh, Lynn Fairhurst. Yeah, yeah, very nice indeed. So that's... I think that's, that's pretty much, pretty much the, 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 the crew on this, and I don't think there are any other specific connections or any points of interest that I can think of more to mention about Not this off the movie. top of my head, no. It's, um... No, so, I mean, really just... It's a little period piece of the time, of the time when uh, Ackerbilk was at his peak... Mm. And again, it's an example of people cashing in on that. We've got a star here who's doing well at the moment. Let's yeah. make a quick knockoff, a quick movie about him. It absolutely uh, is a knockoff, yep. quick job. There's no artistic endeavour in it. But as we've said many times on this, everything is done well. Yes. And it's mercifully short <laughs> and very enjoyable. That yes, is a band of thieves. Some people want to play a swinging clarinet Here's one I know just come up from Somerset He likes to wear a bowler hat I guess there's nothing wrong in that But all he wants to do is sing Some people say he's got the very finest band His agent, some people say it's the best in all the land Yeah, his mother, a shiny waistcoat made of silk The best sits a Mr. Ackerville That's him But all he wants to do is sing Now he's got jukebox jewelry And they'll vote this a miss But they could be so wrong Cause as many a hit like this Some people say music makes the world go round I say it's flat There's quite a lot of truth so if you sing a song, then nothing can go wrong. What about So all you want to do is sing. How about you, Dad? All I want to do is sing. Now we got two bucks to read. They'll vote this and miss. But they could be so wrong. Cause the many hit like this. Some people say music makes the world go round. There's quite a lot of truth in that we found So if you sing a song, then nothing can go wrong So all we want to do is sing How about you, Dad? All we want to do is sing Right, so we're going to move on to the second feature in our Crime Caber Cop and Pop Double and that is Dateline 
diamonds. So, synopsis, please. Okay. Fingers and ears again if you don't want to hear any spoilers. So, Lester Benson, manager of up-and-coming pop sensations The Small Faces, is blackmailed by Major Fairclough, a disgraced former army officer, into assisting with a diamond smuggling operation between Britain and the Netherlands using offshore pirate station Radio London as a pickup point. But after being spotted making their escape from a robbery at a Hatton Garden diamond merchant's, the two men are pursued by police who track them down to a Radio London show where the small faces and a number of other acts are performing. After the police corner Benson and get him to cooperate, Fairclough attempts to escape by car, is chased by the cops, an exciting shootout doesn't quite happen, and he, <laughs> and he surrenders. The end. <clears throat> Good. Right. So what do we think of this one? Yeah, no. Sorry, I've 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 loaded that question. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so yeah, you, you, you did. I think it was the yeah, <laughs> the tone of it. No, it, it, this isn't as good. This isn't as good. This is this is an example. Everything they got that went right in um, Band of Thieves doesn't come off here. It's as lightweight a movie in many ways as Band of Thieves. Yes, <clears throat> it doesn't have the benefit of as sharp a script. And a lot of things just don't come together. The direction is perfunctory, which, considering who directed it, is a little bit unusual, because he's done better than this. Mm. Um, the script is almost pure exposition, uh, which, again, the writer of it has done better, or will go on to do better. Mm. The performers, the pop star, the actual pop stars in it, are underused. It's just... It doesn't come off. There's it, the the cinematography, some of the frame, shots framed, particularly in the performance sequence at the end, mm. are weird, are right up the performers' noses, and really tight, close shots, full face. It's it it didn't come off me, and it's a shame because it's a film that I'd heard a lot about, particularly back in the in the Britpop days, which mm. dates me. But in the Britpop days, uh, and the small faces became canonised around yeah. that time, and I'm reading books about. I mean, yeah, Paolo Curie wrote a book about. Small Faces, and, and Dateline Diamonds was mentioned a lot as mm. the Small Faces movie. And I knew it wasn't a, a Small Faces movie in the way that uh, Hard Day's Night was a bit... Or even read, any of the can or, or even Cats of can. yeah, 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 any of those things. I'm aware it wasn't that, but to see how little the Small Faces, mm. and not to mention the other performers in it, are used, mm. um, was disappointing. And, and the whole... There's something about the tone of the film just doesn't come off. Well, I just think this film doesn't know what it wants to do. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't do it with great aplomb, you know. <laughs> uh, it, As you say, it doesn't centre in any way, not even in a perfunctory way, really, a, around the small faces. Uh, we're introduced to them at the start of the film, mm -hmm. and they come along their band, and they chirpily get out of their yeah, van. leap out of the uh, their van. And you think, OK, here we go. Yeah. We're going to have a thing here. And then they do not appear again... Till near the end of the movie. Yeah. They're mentioned. They're mentioned part. consistently, but they do not appear again until the end of the movie. And even then, they are... Their song isn't even really featured up front and centre. There's plot going on around Yeah, it. there's cut... Is they cut away from Which it. Which puts them in the background for most yeah. of their, their singular performance that they do in it. And I think, whereas The Band of Thieves was a vehicle to highlight Ackerbilk and his Paramount Jazz Band, and they obviously looked at those guys and like, what are their personalities? Let's see yes. what we can... They, and as yeah. we mentioned, brought out the best in these people. They don't care what the small faces are, who the small faces are. We've got an actor in Steve Marriott who's yeah. 
who is actually an actor. Yep. And he's got some acting chops. He's he's in other movies before and after this. Yes. He's been on the stage playing the Artful Dodger. Yeah. You know, so this is a guy who they don't even have to look very far to say, can he act? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and there's already seen that he can. There's already evidence to say and he can. And yet they don't use that even for a couple of one-liners, they don't use it. No. And and it's quite incredible. So we, on the one hand, you've got a film that utilises the skills of all its people and becomes greater than the sum of its parts. Mm. And in this one, you've got the sum of its parts crushed into the dirt and completely yeah. underutilised. Because there is some talent in this movie. There There's, is? Yeah, there, there is. And... and People in this, working in front and behind the cameras, mm. who've done much, much better work Absolutely. than this. And it somehow subtracts from everyone yeah. in this movie. It, do, it doesn't make the most of anybody. And it's a real shame. It feels like... It doesn't even feel much like a movie. It's a, I mean, Band of Thieves is is perfunctory in terms of its plot and everything, but at least it feels like you're, you're going on a bit of a story. You're right, there. this feels a bit more like TV. It does, it feels like an yeah. episode of a of a cop TV show. Yeah, it does, you're right, it does. And it's got this, the, the same depth of um, uh, plot as you would expect from one of those sort of Edgar Wallace or something, yeah. you know. Just like that, that isn't it? Where, where you've got not much of a plot line, but it just explores one or two small themes. Mm. Those TV shows tended to... This week we're uh, doing a psychological theme, you know, mm. about betrayal or something. Uh, and and this sort of fell like that. Interestingly enough, it was the B-movie, mm. The Doctor in Clover. OK. So quite what they would have made of that Doctor in Clover was very light-hearted knockabout. So you'd think if they were making it for that, they'd have made it funnier than it was. Maybe yeah. they thought it was funnier than it was, because it's not without some good lines, but mm. it really falls short of utilising its talents, its pacing is ordinary, everything about it is, is ordinary. Well, the pace is a bit leaden, actually. Yeah. It's not even ordinary, it's mm. leaden. It's... Well, there were one or two bits that work. Um, so, for instance, the, the robbery itself is probably a moment where they get a few elements right. For instance, I think it's got a really yes, groovy does, bit of soundtrack yeah, by, jo true, actually, by yeah. Johnny Douglas. Yeah. Uh, at that point, and they take great pains to go to exactly how he's doing yeah. the robbery, and actually for that sequence in the film, works. Yeah. And it's done in science, and I reckon that's probably a nod towards, is it Rafifi? The, yeah. Is it French film? With a long dialogue-free heist Absolutely. scene in it. Well, it's not quite at that level. No, absolutely but, not. Uh, <laughs> uh, any, uh, it, no, it is a highlight. It's a, Well, I say that. It, it's a bit of the movie that works. Yeah. And there aren't many of those in this film. There no. are the very precious few bits in this film that actually work. And that is one of them, is the actual... So it's not that it doesn't have anything. Um, and Johnny Douglas's music throughout is successful. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it falls very far short of being the sum of its parts. Yeah. It looks like that the music acts in there have been a bolt-on job. Yeah. And it could have been anybody. Could have been. They, they literally could have been anybody. Because and they could have had a made-up band to yeah. do what Small Faces did. Because it, it's, uh, I guess, the Small Faces wanted to wanted the promotion opportunity. Well, but probably Donard and their manager. It wouldn't have done anything them. for them. No. Well, it didn't, and it and it uh, its whole point failed, which was to promote the song that they're seen mm. to be playing in here, which is "I Got Mine," mm. their second single. Yeah. And the two things are meant to tie in, mm. but the, the Dateline Diamonds was meant to have been released some months before. It was, in fact, it was meant to have been um, teamed with The Sandwich Man, another comedy film. Oh, yeah, with yeah, Michael Benzie. yeah, with Michael Benzie, and yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I do think, ultimately, this film 
just doesn't know what it's trying to do. It, it, is it trying to be funny? Mm. You know, full-on uh, comic caper? Because it doesn't manage that. No. It has an, the odd nod to a comedy line and then just that disappears. Is it trying to be a hard-hitting crime movie? You know, it's that sequence of the burglary and various other elements thing. All right, it's going to be gritty crime. Doesn't really go there, doesn't stay there. And, and the end is such an anticlimax mm. in terms of chase. Yeah. That, that, you know, really doesn't succeed on there. Does it want to be a vehicle for the pop stars, which is really what it's ultimately billing to be? Yeah. If it does, it fails spectacularly to... Uh, feature its main pop act in there mm. who do probably the least amount of music in it than any of the other supporting musicians yeah and yeah. even they are not adequately supported by this vehicle yeah. as a vehicle purely for themselves you see more the Chantels don't you you yeah. do but if, if it was a Chantels film you'd still feel short yeah absolutely. because they don't say anything they don't part participate mm. in the thing and certainly from a small perspective a small perspective a yeah. small faces yeah. they're actually seven foot six they just did a long yeah, way away they, they, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it really doesn't succeed to define itself at all. No. It's a disappointing movie. It's a, not angry, just disappointed. Yes. It's, uh, <laughs> I think that's right. When I first saw it, because actually was on Talking Pictures, mm. and I, it was, like I said, I'd heard about it for years, and eventually it was shown on Talking Pictures. Mm. I've never seen it before. It was shown on Talking Pictures TV here in the UK um, a few months ago, and I finally saw it, and it was just, mm? is that well, it? Is I, that it, was, it? it was worse than that for me in that I hadn't seen it. Mm. I got it on a Talking Pictures or Renown oh, yes. uh, DVD box set, um, which was films with a beat. That's right. As and, a, which is also... And it's got lots of good ones. Well, some good ones <laughs> on it. I don't want to over-exaggerate. Including Band of Thieves. Yeah. Uh, but I happened to watch Dateline Diamonds in very close proximity to another film that we will mention in passing right now, and that is The Primitive. Yes. Because yes, yes. originally, folks, we were going to do a double of yes. The Dateline Diamonds and The Primitives. Yes. Until we watched The Primitives <laughs> and realised it's not a pop movie, even slightly. Not really. So where Dateline Diamonds fails to be a good uh, mo movie for uh, as a pop vehicle, it fails to do that. It at least has... Uh, some aspiration to be a pop movie because yeah. it's got pop acts in it. Yes. The Primitives does not. And what The Primitives is doing in a Films with a Beat compilation, I couldn't possibly tell you. No. There is a, there is, it, it is a crime caper of, on a similar level of greatness to Dateline yeah. Diamonds, but the music act in it it is a made-up made music up. act. That aren't particularly pop, are they? And they're not, not pop at all. They're cabaret. They're sort of a latin cabaret yeah. uh, <coughs> job. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And of no great value, you know. And they're not a real act, so why would you be promoting them as a pop yeah. act? It's, it's very odd. I suppose the only uh, example of that that was more successful would be some people didn't feature a real pop act. No. But it featured real pop music and real youth culture aspirations yes. in it, whereas The Primitives was not a youth culture film anyway. No, none of the, none the, of the musicians are of a certain age. They're, they're of a certain they're not... age. Uh, none, of the, none of the plot lines is youth-oriented. No. The look of the film, the feel of the film isn't youth-oriented. It's a total washout. No. The, um, the only uh, points of interest to me as a, mm. as a Doctor Who fan oh, yeah, is so that there's a few people in The Primitives who... Yeah. Um, I mean, there was Derek Ware has has a, a speaking role in it, an acting role, but he was most famous as a stuntman. 
Oh, right. Uh, I think he's involved in the, the Havoc stunt agency. Action by Havoc was Derek Ware. Uh, Rio Fanning, who appeared... There's in a Do- name to become... Uh, there's a name. He, he appeared in a, a very good Doctor Who story in the 70s called Horror of Fang Rock. Mm. It's the one on the lighthouse. Um, he's very good in that. And Barry Jackson, who uh, I think featured in the Romans that we were mentioning oh, earlier. Yeah, story. About, yeah. Had a number of roles over over the years in Doctor Who, but most players are playing the character Drax in a story called The Armageddon Factor. Nice. Um, in 1978, mm. nine. Um, with Mary Tam, who we mentioned earlier. Um, and Tom Baker. So, uh, but anyway, that, but that's the primitive. So uh, we changed our minds about the primitives did, and decided, yeah. Well, I mean, it was just that this, this and the primitives I watched in the same disappointing evening. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know, I was with you. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I was that next to you. And we made a decision that yeah. Band of Thieves would be the better yeah. take uh, yeah. for it, but because primitives have nothing whatsoever to offer as yeah. a pop movie. And Dateline Diamonds um, was better than The Primitives. Yes. I'll say that for Yes. It. So, uh, of course, eagerly-eared listeners uh, who are listening to last, uh, the previous episode uh, might notice a subtle edit at the end where we changed our minds and dubbed on a bit on the end saying which films we were going to do. I'd already <laughs> said, yeah, I'd already said we were going to do The Dateline Diamonds and The Primitives. Yeah. And it didn't happen. Um, that didn't happen. But, uh, but there we go. Anyway, so pressing on. Um, yes. Dateline Diamonds. So, so yeah. let's talk about the Let's, let's talk, talk about the cast. The cast, yeah. So obviously we've covered off the small faces who are just really not in it, and it's such a shame that they didn't feature Steve Marriott in particular. Yeah, because he really could yeah. act. Yeah. And this is the initial lineup of the small faces. Now, yes, of course the small faces are obviously one of the one of the key bands of the sixties. Yeah, absolutely. really, genuinely one of the key British bands of the sixties, and long term certainly one of the most influential. And a band that still sound uh, relevant and good. You yeah, know? I mean. To me, most of the, the, the 60s bands I still enjoy mm. enormously, but the small faces output, a lot of it still sounds modern. So. Yeah, yeah, modern. Because yeah, the, yeah. they genuinely were mods as well. They're part of the modern mm. youth subculture. Well, this film is a mod. The music in it, if they've got anything right, maybe we should talk about this later when we talk mm. about the music, but it is mod music. Yes. Across the board in this, yes. Yeah, it's got that sort of soulful mm. edge to yeah. it, almost all of it. Yeah. And... Um, and so the Small Faces were, they were just at the beginning of their career. They only formed earlier in 1965. Yeah. This film was made in 1965. I don't think it was actually released until 1966. It was Probably held back for a bit. And, um, so they had What You're Going to Do About It. That had yeah, already that, been that, a hit. That had already so been that's a hit. the thing that puts them as the stars yeah. of this vehicle. Yeah. Or the, Which was co-written by Ian Samwell, who wrote Move It for Cliff. Yeah. And, yeah, and uh, also Dynamite and various yeah. other things for Cliff. But the second single, uh, the band insisted they wanted to write their own, because Steve Marriott and Ronnie Lane, the bass player, yeah. had forged a songwriting partnership a la Lennon and McCartney mm. and wanted to get their own song in. So they'd written uh, I Got Mine. Yeah. which the, And that was their next single. But it was by no means as commercial a proposition as um, What You Going to Do About It. It's no. a heavy, quite a heavy brooding... I think it's an excellent song. Oh, no, it's not bad. No, no, it's a, it's a great song. It's a uh, great song. And I think it's reasonably commercial. But, yeah, no, no, you're right. I mean, it's, not as, it's not as front and centre commercial as what you can do. They made sort of what should have been their fifth single second. Yeah, You know, yeah, a yeah. bit. You know, like we say, this film was meant to be promoting that, but it was held back, which didn't help the singles prospects. Mm. They didn't do very well at all. But this is the initial lineup of The Small Faces. So they'd only formed a few months before. Yeah. They'd done their early rehearsals at a pub called the Ruskin Arms, which is in Manor Park in London. And it was owned by Mr and Mrs Winston and their son, Jimmy Winston, 
became the keyboardist and second guitarist. Yeah. In the, this initial line of Small Faces. So we see him there. Yeah, he was playing the guitar. He played the guitar, and almost, and almost we see at the uh, secrets at the end, almost bashes Steve Marriott in the yeah, face. Yeah, he does. He clocks him in the rick and back. And so, there's a nasty little reaction shot of Marriott yeah. there. Um, unfortunately, he didn't quite fit in, or they fell out. I think there's an argument about his brother driving the van, and all, and also he was too tall. <laughs> yeah, but um, uh, I think that was a, there's a great... Um, he was a normal-sized face. Yeah, he was, uh, he was a normal-sized face, not a small face. And In fact, there's a bit in the... Um, there's a stage play about them at the end of it. You go, and you're too effing tall! <laughs> <laughs> when, they, when they get rid of um, And so by the time this film came out, he'd already gone and been replaced by Ian McClacken. Yeah. And that cemented the, the classic line. Yeah, the classic. Of the band. But, um, yeah, Jimmy Winston was, you know, a key in the, the early days of the band, not least because of the Ruskin Arms where they first rehearsed. Yeah. And the Ruskin Arms, incidentally, over a decade later, was the same pub that Iron Maiden got there. Started. Oh, that's where they started, was the Ruskin Arms as well. He had a band called um, Jimmy Winston and His Reflections. Yeah. And then uh, that did a version of Sorry She's Mine by Marriott and Lane. So, a song from his old band. And then he, he had a new band called Winston's Fums, who did a strange sort of freak beaty psychedelic thing called Real Crazy Apartment. Oh, OK. Then, yeah, I can see where that would go. Did, yeah. Didn't do very well, but lots of, sort of fuzzy guitar. Levels. It's quite fun quite a fun song but he started concentrating more on acting and stage work and he was in he became part of the uh, London cast of Hair okay he joined that and then did a fair bit of television acting not least again being a Doctor Who fan he appeared in 1972 he appeared in Day of the Daleks um, okay. with John Pertwee yeah and he does a decent job he's got <laughs> a key role in that mm. in that story and he sort of sustained an acting career for, for some time like I say mostly in time well he didn't say a word in this no, he didn't. Not one word. word. But that's the thing. You know, there's some talent here. Yeah. They do have a few songs on the soundtrack, even though you don't see them play. You hear in the background mm. as if they're playing. Uh, so you've got I Got Mine, Don't Stop What You're Doing, Come On Children and It's Too Late, all of which feature on their, their debut album, which was released later in 66. Yeah. And consists of tracks, some of which those ones were recorded with Jimmy Winston. And then there's some more tracks about another half. The album was recorded with Ian, Ian McClacken, mm. who went on to replace him and lasted the course yeah. with all the various different later lineups and yeah, faces and all that, yeah. and everything like that. But yeah, still underused, massively underused. So nominally, the Small Faces, a great band, but this is not a great vehicle for them. No, they not do, at all. They do nothing. As we say, even the sequence they're in does not deliver them well. No, no, not at all, not at all. So not. the head of the cast of this is William Lucas. Yes, he plays so. Major yeah, yeah, yeah. Fairclough. Um, yeah, in the sort the of chief villain. Chief yeah, villain, yeah, in the sort of role that you can sort of imagine Andre Morel yes. doing. Dare I say slightly better? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, for anyone who's seen the film Cash on Demand, the Hammer film yeah. from '61, yes. this is him, this Andre Morel and Peter Cushing. Yeah, it's kind of a similar dynamic. Yeah, a little bit in, in that you've got like a posh, smooth but villainous guy yeah. coercing someone into. Uh, yeah. into getting involved in his nefarious plans. So he had a long career starting in the 50s. Yes. And, and mainly in television. I, well, I can't recall seeing him in an awful no, well, lot. Well, you, you have, because he's uh, he's part of the cast of X the Unknown. Of course, The yeah. Hammer yes, sci-fi yeah. sort of quite yeah. massy one, yeah. Yeah. Uh, with, which also features Anthony Newley. He turns in a small part in yeah. a small but, but, and, uh, yeah, but, but well, well quite delivered, nice. well, well, delivered, well delivered part, part yeah. yeah. And uh, Dean Jagger, I think, is in that as well, yeah. And that's a that's a good film, actually, better than 
Yeah, better, again, another one of those better, better than, than Dateline Diamonds. Better than Dateline Diamonds, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, he's in that, and... Oh, and he's in... Um, he, he, um, he was in the William Tell series as well. Yeah, it seemed like everybody was in that. Uh, it was one of those that everybody... Yeah. everybody Avengers, was Prisoner. He was in The Saint. Yeah. We've mentioned it before. Yeah. Avengers, Prisoner. Um, Black Beauty. He, oh, he had a key role at Black Beauty. He played Dr. James Gordon in that. Okay. Um, and he was back in it again when they revived it. Zed Cars he was in? Yeah. Well, he did, yeah. And a really good series, Public Eye. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And, um, and again, another Doctor Who connection. Ah, he was go. in the, the Peter Davison's story, uh, Frontios. So that's quite that, late. That's, that's yeah, in 84, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's uh, in Peter Davison's Well, he kept season. going, he did keep going uh, right through the 80s and 90s. Mm. So he was in The Bill. Wow. As late as 2005. Okay, Last so Summer Wine, okay. Coronation Street, and... To his great shame, go he was in El Dorado. El Dorado. So that yes, well, we won't talk about that. No, uh, we'll uh, yeah. But he does a he does a decent job in it. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's quite good as a smooth. He's fine, absolutely uh, fine. Yeah, a decent role because he's sparring with Kenneth Cope. Kenneth Cope, yeah, as. Lester Benson, manager yeah, of the hip hop group The Small Faces, Lester Benson, aka Arthur Gittins. Yeah. Because he's changed his name to hide from his criminal past. And he's a, well, was and is a hugely prolific. Yeah. Actor. This is a pre carry on Kenneth Cope, you know? Yes. I guess he, he'd already appeared in Coronation Street. Yeah. And he yeah, as well yeah. had been in X the Unknown. I think he's the first victim of the creature. I think he is, yeah. Yeah, right at the beginning of the film. Well, he was a long time in Coronation Street. I mean, he was... Well, yeah, he was in a bit and then... He was in the 60s a couple of times and then he came back about 10 years ago as the same character. Yeah. Which is quite nice. And not big Corey Watcher, but that's good. Oh, nor am I. And... Never touched the stuff. Never touched... Never touched the... He's in the Damned Hammer sci-fi horror movie, which would have been a couple of years before this he had a nice light touch about him he was again yeah. he was one of those he was one of those actors that seemed cool. to deliver quickly yeah. you know uh snappily his dialogue there's no ponderous nature to him yeah. at all which which i think would have been really good in this if he was given more to do yeah again they start out with him and then they never really allow his character to develop no because he's obviously got a shady past and everything yeah. like that and changes yeah. changes name and all that i mean stuff. he comes into the film with a great little thing so the guy, the officious bloke at the port is, mm. you know, whinging away at him. And he comes in bright and breezy. Mm. And the, the first says something to him and he goes, oh, well, we've all got our problems and nips off. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the way the way he delivers that, you think, right, we're in for a sparky character. Yeah. With a few good one-liners. And then it just never happens. No. He ends up being sort of something of a patsy. Yeah, patsy to the other guy. Um, yeah. And... It's a very uh, apologetic sort of performance, as though he was there going, sorry, I ran out of lines. Yeah. You know, and, and it really suffers from that. Yeah. And it's a shame, because he's a, he's a generally good actor. And, of course, a few years later, he became most famous appearing in Madeleine Hopkirk. Yeah, of course. Deceased. Yeah. With um, Mike Pratt. Yeah. Who was Lionel Bart's writing partner. Yeah. Uh, early on. Yeah. And the father of Guy Pratt, who's a very prolific bass player. Yeah. Particularly with Pink Floyd and its offshoots. Um, yeah. And now stand-up comic. So he's in Edgar Wallace prior to this as well on the Lance Percival show. Lance, the great yeah, comic like, actor, yeah, yeah, Lance yeah. Percival. Zed Cars again. The Avengers, of course. Of course I mean, yeah. as we've said, well, well, maybe we should just let you know when they're not in the Avengers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just just take might, it as read that they yeah, do show up in the Avengers. He's in yeah. Carrier at your convenience. Oh, he's great in that as the, as the, union, as the union guy. 
he is really yeah, good. Yeah, the everybody out um, yeah. union yeah. guy. Doesn't he get put over someone's knee at the end of the thing and gets yeah. given a good spanking or something? The thing, you know, I was quite surprised he wasn't in a, a, a couple more. He was, and then he did, he did Matron as well. But he, yeah. he did seem right for that idiom. He had the right sort of face yeah. for that for the for the carry-ons but you know and he could he, deliver a line he was yeah, a, yeah he was uh, he was you know sharp guy of course he was on that was the week yeah. that was as well he was part of the so, team on that well he was uh, one of the writers too oh was he for ah. it and that's obviously a major yeah. accolade that's right key yeah key program and satire so it had to be sort of you know written to respond to mm. the current news and current affairs mm. he was a man of quick wit yeah and who was uh, well he wrote sharp. some of the scripts for Randall Hotcoat yeah as well Oh, and I should also mention, Kenneth Cope was in Doctor Who as well. Warriors Gate in 1980 with Tom Baker. Right. Very strange story, but, but good. A right. good one. Yeah, very odd. Interesting man, and I think still work. He's still with us, anyway. Uh, yeah, underused in this film. Uh, starts well, and then completely peters out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Be like this podcast. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, then we come to a Dutch actor. George Mikkel, yes. Yeah. That's right. As Paul Verkett. Well, he must have had a rude awakening at this point because prior to this, he'd been in the Guns of Navarone yep. and the Great Escape. Two fantastically right. successful. He really had both really good SS, films. Both as SS officers, yeah. hadn't he? Yeah, yeah. Really yeah. top grade films, and then you know he finds himself in this nonsense. <laughs> he was also, to his great shame, in the Primitives. He was three years before, so actually he knew he knew about yeah, terrible. He knew films. about cheap, <laughs> cheap knockoff movies. Yeah. <laughs> he had quite a. Uh, a reasonable career, mm. late fifties, and he kind of had that face that you you see in a lot of TV at this time, and that European accent which could put him anywhere <laughs> from Poland through to the, you know anywhere across the Rhine, yes, and down to to oh no, he could be Danish at a yeah, push, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. and at a time when. Uh, British TV did like to utilise lots of English actors with the old accent doing yeah, the very Nesbitts. Yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> they, they all did it at some point. All of those actors at some point put on a cod uh, yeah. European yeah. Germanic accent. Well, after a while, Lois Olivia didn't do anything else. <laughs> no, <that's laughs> and oh, either is a is a Germanic or Russian. Yes. Just depends how far east of the curtain, <laughs> towards the curtain, or beyond that you wanted to the go. Turn really. curtain, yeah. Yeah. yeah, he had that face and that voice mm. to fit a lot of these parts. So I'm sure mm. he got mm. portrayed yes. as that character yes. a lot. Universal European, yeah. universal yeah. European, yeah. Chum is it just being a Dutch cop always puts me in mind of the Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my partner, all, all Sean, what are you happy to say? My lover. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I mean he's fine. Yeah, he's fine. Um, I mean he does. Yeah, well, he hasn't got a lot to work with. Really. No, no, no. He's got. He's got it's a really limited... hard. This is a hard film to review in some respects. Yeah, because because there's so little. It's so perfunctory in almost every aspect. It's it's hard. Yeah, everybody uh, does everything they can do as well as they can within their very limited spectrum of what mm. they can do. Right. So yeah, George Mikel. Nothing more to say about him. But there's plenty to say about Codrand Phillips. Oh yes, yes. Who believes? Because he was a mainstay of British television for years and years. Yeah, and yeah. Many yeah. people probably one of the most famous things would be the Forty Towers appearance he made. Yes. Um, so he was Polly's uncle, was it? He was definitely. Oh yeah. He was definitely. So it's the episode in Forty Towers where uh, Basil Forty thinks everybody's at it. Yes. 
and um, there's a wedding party uh, that that are coming along, and yes. he keeps coming to the room, and Polly's in various states of undress because she's taking trying on some dresses for yeah. the wedding, <laughs> and various states of undress with various different men. One of <laughs> whom is Conrad Phillips, yes. who is the Rather debonair, older man. Yeah, that's that's sort of thing, him, yes. Um, and obviously, Forty Towers is massive worldwide export. Yeah. So I think a lot of people would know his face. They would know what he, who he was. Yeah. But they would know his face from his appearance in Forty Towers. Towers. Yeah. Because yeah. here he's playing um, Tom Jenkins, the main main police yes. officer, isn't he? Yeah. And he does it perfectly well. Well, considering the character is a sort of cookie cutter, tired middle-aged cop with a complicated home home life or yeah or as complicated as it gets yeah married to the job kind of guy mm. um he's not yeah. yeah yeah he's fine he was in lots of tv including william, william tell but well, he played william tell yeah yeah he yeah played william tell edgar wallace yeah you know all those sort of things so and he's also in a film with anthony newley called the last man to hang yes yes uh, although anthony newley actually wasn't the main character in that but uh is a connection well, back to our yeah. our well, narrative. Well, more more pertinent to this this film, he shows up in Heavens Above, the Bolting Brothers movie. Yeah, that's it, yeah, which yeah. features um, a young Steve Marriott. Yeah, as one of Eric Sykes's children. Eric Sykes plays a um, was it a travelling head of a travelling family yeah, that Peter Sellers' well-meaning uh, vicar allows to stay on their land, and um, yeah, and uh, Conrad Phillips is in that as is Steve Marriott. He's, yeah. Before he was first. He's in Callan. Yes, he is. Yeah, yeah Callan and the Saint, of and course. And the Prisoner, of course. Yeah. And um, up your street, well, both of our street, because I love it too, um, Jeremy Brett, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. He's yeah, in, yeah, he's yeah. in Much that. Much later in, in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, yes. it, which is, yeah, I mean, absolutely, that's my thing. I could have another podcast all about uh, <laughs> Jeremy, Jeremy Brett's Brett. uh, Sherlock Holmes. When we've exhausted yeah. all the pop films, yeah. we'll, we'll do yeah. Jeremy Brett. He's in The Avengers. Yeah. But didn't we say, yeah. Everybody's in Everybody's that, in so the event. Just take it as a in the Avengers. Yes, uh, yes, yes. But, I mean, he really was a mainstay of TV well, right throughout the 60s. Started in the 50s, actually. He was a mainstay in the 50s, mm. 60s, and uh, carried on through the, the 70s and then really had a bit of a Indian summer in the 80s yeah. uh, with a lot of key performances. And he always had that sort of debonair, sophisticated elegance yes. about his performance he was generally his range wasn't big no or to my knowledge i haven't seen everything he's been in by a long shot but the stuff i have seen him in he generally gets cast as doctors mm. or, or you know figures of authority yeah um who are respected but always likable yes yeah yeah, yeah. well actually another connection i've noticed to this film he yeah. also showed up in the Kenny Everett television show. Oh, yes, of course. In the 80s. Yeah. And Kenny Everett, well, as we all mentioned in the end of it, shows up in this. Yeah. So that's Conrad Phillips, does a decent yeah. job. Then we come to Patsy Rowland, of course. Yes. A very, very familiar face. Absolutely. Particularly um, through Carry On, isn't it? She, yeah. Because she's the character that spots um, Major Fairclough yeah. making his escape from the Hatton Garden diamond merchant. That's right, yeah. And, um, and she spends most of the film with the two coppers putting together a photo bit, doesn't she? And yeah. she, she's all right. She's sort of the um, the comic relief character yeah, in it. It's kind of over, over-egged, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's very patronising. Yeah. To a modern eye, it's an yes. extremely yes, patronising sort of there, there, uh, you silly woman yeah. role. Yes, yes. 
um, and definitely it's the sort of thing that that uh, that is of its time. Mm. Mm. It's quite she does it very amusingly yeah. for the bit that she does it, but uh, and and it works a little bit. But again, it's a, it's a really good example of how this film doesn't quite get it right because mm. it it's unbalanced with what's happening around it. It it's sort of its comedy is broader yeah. and then it isn't followed up with any other broad comedy. Yeah. Uh, you know, within proximity yeah. of it. So it kind of stands out and you think, well, that's a bit odd. Yeah. It I don't know. And she does it well. Like I said, I know her particularly from, from Carrie. Is she in Convenience as well? I think she is. Yes. Uh, she was always cast in those bumbling yeah. support roles. Uh, she was in, obviously, most famous for the carry-ons, as we've mentioned, and she was yeah. in a, a, a string of carry-ons. Yeah. Uh, in the in the seventies, yeah, um, where Carry On was in its decline slightly. I yeah. think her first appearance is Carry On Again, Doctor. That's quite a good one. The, the well, end yeah. of Jim Dale's. That's Jim Dale's last, last one. So sort of the end of the, the end of the great era. Yeah, for the Carry Ons. But then uh, she's in um, Carry On Loving. Yes. Uh, Carry On Henry. Mm-hmm. Carry On at Your Convenience with as is Kenneth, Kenneth Cope. Cope. So she's there with him again. Carry On Matron. As Carry is on Kenneth Cope. Fraud. Carry on, girls. Carry on, Dick. Mm-hmm. And carry on, behind. Yes. She was in the Bless This House spin-off movie. Oh, as was well. she? I've not seen uh, that. Yet, yeah, it, it's not a, a thing of greatness, mm-hmm. but she was in it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Diane Coupland's sort of mate. Yes. And they they, they yeah, do yeah, start yeah. off a little business together, doing antiques, and she doesn't have a lot to do in this that movie, but. Um, She's in it. Yeah. Uh, she did lots and lots of comedy stuff as well as the, the standard TV fair, pretty much all the, yeah. the TV series so that, that we just mentioned. mentioned. Yeah. 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 And then including Zed Cars. Not think she did Doctor Who, though. You would know. You would know. I would. Um, Doesn't ring a bell. So she played light characters and, and mainly largely comic characters. And she has a nice little turn in this without quite being in the right place mm. for me. It sort of jumped out a little bit. Yes. Uh, maybe that's with a modern eye. Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe at the times yeah. it was a bit of light relief that was very, very welcome in, yeah. in an otherwise dull film. But yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Good, act, good, good. Yeah, but a fine action. She does, does, does the best she can with the role that she's given. Yeah. I think actually she's one of the one of the more engaging yeah. characters in it. If only because she's a good comic, comic actress who who's given something. She's certainly given to more do. to do than Kenneth Cope. Yeah, absolutely. Who's wasted. Who's yeah. Wasted. So, um... Burnell Tucker? Burnell Tucker, yeah. And he plays... So there's two DJs are seen in um, in the sequences on the Radio London ship. Yes. Uh, one of whom is... He's a real DJ. He's a real DJ. Kenny Everett, of yeah. course. Legendary. Uh, and they're talking about people mm. tearing up the rule book. Kenny mm. Everett, as a DJ, absolutely did. He really innovative, although not a little... Um, controversial yes. as well he was forever getting sacked especially from pirate radio and things like that and the bbc he was he was yeah. employed and sacked by the bbc i think they needed a revolving door <laughs> broadcasting <laughs> yeah, house yeah. the amount of times he was sacked and re-employed but he um he was really funny and crazy and inventive but also loved music yes yeah did, that was yeah. the important thing he yeah. wasn't one of these personality djs that that was just there to promote themselves he yeah he ultimately loved he loved music. But he also moved into television, and by the end of the 70s, which is where I, I come in when I was a little boy, he had the Kenny Everett video show. Yeah, yeah. Which, in its initial incarnation, was basically going to be a radio show on the TV. It was mm. done like, like a radio Absolutely. show. But slowly, the sort of comic it inserts it developed, developed yeah. and 
by the mid eighties, he moved over to the BBC and it was, was a full sketch. Was show. a full it was it was doing full sketch shows yeah. and do full comedy, um, and all done in the best possible all done in the best possible tastes. Yeah. Um, with a whole variety of characters, a really really innovative guy. He's only seen for a, a few moments in this and looking very very young, very young. Yeah, so so clean shaven yeah. and and very young looking. But you almost have to sort of do a double take to see and who it is. straight in this and straight apparently. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, at one point he has to actually appreciate the, uh, the glamorous uh, glamorous ladies. Yeah. Uh, which he does more convincingly yeah. than <laughs> Kenneth Williams does in a film we mentioned earlier the twice, twice around the, the daffodils, daffodils where he's yeah. stuck into a he's stuck inside a uh, cupboard in the kitchen with lance percival <laughs> watching a, a young lady who's lost her undergarments and <laughs> his attempts to appear aroused <laughs> or, uh, are, are, are worth the entrance fee alone yes. let me tell you don't quite come, no. <laughs> don't quite come ever, off but then again nothing did he kenny but, um, does a heterosexual lasciviousness much better than kenneth williams Yes, indeed. So of the two Kennys, you want that? Yeah. Uh, go for Kenny Everett. Yes, indeed. Um, but in that sense, so he's fine. He's an actual DJ, but he's paired with mm. um, a Canadian actor called Burnell Tucker, mm. who's playing a, a DJ called Dale Meredith. And I wasn't sure because I'm not as well versed in in 60s DJs, but uh, <laughs> well, that's probably the best place to be. But but no, he was a he was yeah. a fictitious, he was um, a fictitious. pirate radio DJ. Because of course we mustn't forget this is in the days of the pirate radio mm. when the BBC had like an iron grip over uh, yeah, radio. There was no use radio at all. No I mean, there was half an hour. Yeah, half an hour of pop music if you're yeah. lucky on the BBC. And even that would be highly. If you're not li likely to hear the latest, most controversial sounds on. The BBC Light no, Radio, no, as it was. Nothing so innovative, not the Light Programme. And if you're lucky, you could get Radio Luxembourg yep. uh, from Europe. But you, um, but by the 60s, time of the 60s, they just cottoned on to the fact that if you broadcast outside British territorial waters, yeah. um, they couldn't stop you. Basically, it could be picked up mm. in the UK and no one could stop you. So sometimes, like Radio London, they were moored on a, a, a ship out in the yeah. ocean, moored out in the ocean. Sometimes they were on um, uh, sea forts mm. or something. As long as it was outside yeah. is it the four-mile limit or whatever, yeah. um, they could do it, which is what this, uh, we should say, which is what the, the, the plot of this story hinges upon. Because that's where they, they, try, they do the transactions with the diamonds. Yes. Get them over so that they can then go to the continent yeah. from, from the radio uh, broadcast. Yeah, so yeah. places like Caroline, Radio yeah. Caroline, of course, probably the most famous yes. of those new 60s yeah, swinging uh, swing uh, uh, radio stations. Uh, and of course, Tony Blackburn, a big mainstay yeah. well, of, of Caroline. They, they were basically, all the in, uh, almost all the initial run of uh, BBC Radio 1 DJs were, were, from Caroline. Were, were, were harvested from Pirate Radio because the, was it the Marine Broadcasting Act? I think Tony Benn mm. um, implemented it. Um, because he said it was blocking out important frequencies, um, and I don't know the full, but it was it was down to him, Tony Ben, um, and so they were all closed off. Yes, yeah, so the pirate radio were BBC. forced to shut, and the best of the DJs or the most tenacious ended up on on as the initial raft of Radio One raft of Radio <laughs> One uh, DJs. They clung to the raft and floated over to the BBC. Yeah, <laughs> and um, so they. Um, yeah, and Tony Blackburn, of course, so and John Peel, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, this is interesting in that it does represent that whole subculture of uh, pirate radio. Yes, yes. Uh, which was so, so important mm. for the youth. Yeah, and a, a lot of bands owe their careers to pirate radio. Yeah, they do. You know, And in fact, The Who, um, in 67, so um, shortly after the pirate radio stations had closed down that summer, 
The Who made a whole album called The Who Sell Out which is done in the style of a pirate radio broadcast. Really ahead of its time idea. Mm. So the songs are interspersed with jingles and yeah. adverts and things. Um, as tribute to that, because they, they were really helpful uh, uh, in The Who's career and many, many other bands. They own. Some of them wouldn't have got any airplay at all if it wasn't for pirate radio. Yeah, and if any of these big pro uh, progressive sounds, yes, you would be able to hear them there as opposed to just the vetted uh, bubblegum pop that you might be fed... Yeah, in on small the, doses on the yeah, BBC. On the yes. BBC like, yeah. So, so um, Dale Meredith, it turns out, is not a real DJ. And it, yeah, I'm played by Burnell Tucker, Canadian actor, um, who was and is um, massively prolific. Not over famous, and often in tiny roles, supporting roles, yeah. spear carrying roles. Yeah, it was the only but he's I always think he's most recognisable. Yes, for. but he'd previously been in Doctor Strangelove. So yeah. before this movie, yeah, yeah. He'd, he'd appeared in Doctor Strangelove. You only lived twice. Yeah, uh, the Bond movie went on to appear in that. Um, two thousand and one again for Kubrick. Mm. Again for Kubrick in two thousand and one. He's in the two thousand. Yes, yes, he is. Yeah, Finders Keepers is a link to uh, him in this because Finders Keepers is a Cliff Richard. Yes, movie, it is. the last in the line of those. Yeah, those him and the shadows in the sixties with the shadows. Yeah, uh, before he moves to his so a couple of solo outings. Yeah, uh, on. one later on in that decade, and then of course Take Me High. Yeah, yeah, in the seventies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but he was a, a bit part in Finders Keepers there with Cliff Richard in the Shadows, mm -hmm. which was the least successful of those yeah, movies. That, that probably the one. death knell of yeah. them. They you know. <laughs> um, didn't make another. Yeah. And uh, he's in the first two Star Wars movies. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. And the first two Superman movies. Yeah. Um, he's in The Shining, again with Kubrick. Kubrick yeah. obviously liked him. Because I think being a Canadian actor based in Britain and a lot yeah. of American movies were shot at Pinewood and Shepparton, in those days. Yeah. So having someone who could do a convincing North American accent, but they didn't have to ship over. Yeah. Obviously came in, <laughs> obviously came in handy, but he's, he was still working right up until recently. He's, he's in, again, Doctor Who. Yeah, he's yeah. in, um, in Matt Smith's time. Uh, the angels take Manhattan. Yeah. One of the weeping angel stories. Yeah. Um, that's, that's quite a good one with, uh, yeah. 2012. That was, he was in love joy. He was in love joy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, no, I think he had a really good career right across right across the the decades, or again mainly in support yes roles really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a sort of placid face. Yeah, you know, you so you can't see him being too much of the dynamic lead. Maybe the uh, inscrutable nature of his face may yeah. appealed in certain yeah. roles. In this one, he looks sort of. Slightly bewildered and perplexed uh, <laughs> when surrounded by the young girls. Yes, yes. And what I found interesting about the, the his role in it and the DJ mm. is shining a light on the culture yes. of those days vis-a-vis -vis DJs and young girls. Yes, Because, of indeed. course, obviously it's a, it's a topic which has been extremely red-hot in the last 15 20 years. Yeah, certainly the last certainly few years. Certainly since, you know, Revelations uh, uh, came out. Several. Uh, and post Seville. Um but what what it throws in because of course in this it's done in a, the honest uh, way that that it can be when people are not thinking about it and they're just yeah. representing real life without without it being a major yes. thing. It's not a focus of this film at all. It's a no. incidental. But, it, but with what today's eyes, comes to light with today's eyes is how bad that culture was. Yes. I mean, you've got the situation where. One of the characters in it, who's a teenager, and I, 
young teenager, supposed like to be a young teenager, or so, sent, Cartwright's yeah, the, sent the in a picture of herself to the DJ. And they're banding around yeah, the office. Yeah, 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 look at this bit of stuff. And oh, yeah, she's getting it. So it, there's very much this is sort of fair get a perk of a, a perk, perk of, of the job. job yeah. Is that you're going to be uh, bedecked with uh, you know underage girls? Yeah. Basically, is what yeah. you know. And uh, it it looks very bad. Yeah, especially when it's just done as matter of fact. Yeah, thing. Which I mean, is, yeah. I mean, we were watching that short. Uh, again, one of the other uh, booze-based films we were watching mm. um, uh, called Under the Table You Must Go. Yeah. Uh, like a, a pub travelogue around London. Yeah. And one of the places... It's sort of a documentary, semi-documentary. And one of the places they call in is like a place with a groovy disco. And Stuart Henry, the DJ, the Scottish oh, DJ, um, is there DJing and also interviewing and simultaneously really sleazily chatting up yeah. all the all the women and I you just see everything you yeah and it, and you just see the 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 culture yeah of the I time mean, certainly certainly what DJs seem to yeah. expect i mean he was much worse yeah. than this portrayal yeah, i mean he yeah. was really really sleazy and mm. i'm sure even at that day a lot of people would have gone you sleaze bag yeah 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 to to him in that because he just came across as the big i am yeah yeah so arrogant and so entitled to have these women and do whatever he wanted with it. The character in Dateline Diamonds is not like that at all. No. He's quite he a nice... assuming. Yeah, he's it, quite yeah. a nice, clean-cut, perfectly pleasant sort of chap, very placid. Um, it's just that the implication is that this is normal for a DJ's yeah. perks to include very young, yeah. and in this case, underage girls and this is okay yeah and as you say it's it's the honesty of <clears throat> normality that makes it so sort of startling yeah yes yes indeed anyway well, well that's talking, the djs talk, yeah well talking of we might talking well move on to her yeah. yeah yeah so the the girl in it who's the policeman's daughter mm. um gay jenkins is played by a young and almost unrecognizable anna Cartwright. yeah almost yeah anna Cartwright, who went on to be a very respected actress and really came to prominence in the in the 80s as the second le uh, lead of the the cop show Juliet Bravo. Yeah. Because previously they'd, it had been led by um, an actress called Stephanie Turner. Because, mm. uh, incidentally, uh, the character wasn't called Juliet Bravo. It was the name of the no, series. No. Stephanie Turner had played Inspector Jean Darbley and then she left after two or three series and Anna Cartwright stepped in. As Inspector Kate uh, Longton. That's mm. right. And um, she... And, yeah, that's the role she's most famous for. Yeah, and, without and, a doubt. And, but that set her on um, a path to be a very respected, mm. very respected actor. We're sort of used to seeing her as quite sort of um, authoritative or, or... Yeah, and just generally a, a woman of a certain age in a certain I, well, role. I, I mean, I think, the, I think the critically in it... Mm. She was always much more cerebral looking. Yes. Um, yes, yes. To, and as you say, authoritative. And if I would say not really a glamour starlet type. Mm. So it probably took her getting out of those years. Yes. And into, say, her 30s. Yeah. Before yeah. she could land the sort of roles yeah. that, that would actually show her yeah, to a best really life. Yeah, really yeah, suited yeah. Suited And her. I think that yeah. happened. 
And of course, in that uh, role in Juliet Bravo, she really got the role that she needed. Yes, yes, yes. And made it her own. Yeah. But no, a, a very good actress mm. in her own right. Again, she does the best with a quite a she's fine. cardboard role. She's fine she's in fine. it. She's fine. What else can you say? She does. Yeah. She's fine. Yeah, or a two-dimensional role, I should yeah. say, not cardboard, because she's Well, she's she is two-dimensional for most of it, because <laughs> she's presented as a photo. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. Yeah, so that's Anna Cartwright. Who else have we got? Her I guess. Mum. Oh, oh yes, the mum, yes. No, I haven't really got any notes for her. Well, there's not a lot to say because she does about three things in the movie. Van der Godsel okay. is, her, is her name, but she doesn't do... Van der Godsel is her name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, she's, she's in uh, a series of movies and TV, mainly TV at this sort of time, including a very nice little film in 1966 called The Wrong Box. Oh, yes. With Michael uh, Caine and the gorgeous Nanette Newman. Yeah, and now, Pete, we're oh, Pete and Dud. Yeah, and Pete and Dud, of course, and Peter Sellers. Yes. Plays a role. In fact, it's got everybody in it. It's yeah, got John Red Graves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, just to illustrate my example about uh, Anna Cartwright, mm. the, the, one of the epitomes of the glamour starlet that I was talking about would be Nanette Newman. Yes. I mean... Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. In every respect. Certainly back then. In every Certainly respect. Certainly back then, in the early... And so uh, the, the, the star of The Wrong Box... Um, oh, so you've seen the shot in the dark. Mm. I see. Yeah, yeah, uh, which is uh, yeah. the, second is the second yeah, Inspector yeah. Clouseau movie. We're now back, sorry. When we say she, we mean Van der Godsel. Yep. But she's always playing cleaning ladies and uh, <laughs> and madams and yes. that sort of character. Yes. Oh, she's in 80,000 Suspects. Very good Val Guest film, all set in Bath, about a smallpox epidemic in Bath. Yeah, and she is in Bitter Harvest as oh, well. I've heard of that. Uh, now, um, Bitter Harvest also, incidentally, William Lucas was in Bitter oh, okay. Harvest. Huh. And Bitter Harvest is a, is a good um, movie from the early 60s, which highlights the excess of fame and fortune and chasing the high life. It's basically a cautionary tale yes. against uh, that sort of style of living which stars Janet Monroe, oh. lovely Welsh actress. Yes, yes. Yeah, so quite quite a relevant uh, uh, film in this, and particularly as we're doing Band of Thieves, because mm. Bitter Harvest, the theme, was played by none other than Akabilk. Oh. Uh, so a really good film, if you haven't seen it, really good film to see, Bitter Harvest. Okay. It's bittersweet, much more on the bitter side than yes. the sweet side. But it's, re it's, it's uh, really well, well shot. Yes. It's a bit of a gem, actually, a bit of a, good, a, bit of a oh. gem. Yeah. Oh. Oh, well, I'd better hurry up and yeah. uh, watch it then. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, there's William Lucas is in it from this, and so is Van der Godsel. Oh, well, there we go. So we have a double Dateline Diamonds yeah. connection and a single Band of Thieves connection yeah. to the film from 1963, Bitter Harvest. She was also Van der Godsel in The Wrong Arm of the Law. OK. Another really top-notch... Uh, Yes. Example of British comedy. Good, yeah, very British good. British comedy done well. And she was in This Sporting Life. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, Lindsay Anderson movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, with Richard Harris, of course. And William Hartnell. It's the yeah. film that got William Hartnell the role in Doctor Who. Oh, Luke. right, is it? Because they'd seen him in that and realised he had greater range than he, uh, he'd previously... Mm. Yeah, rather than these sort of, like, tough guys and sergeants that he generally played. And like a few of the people in this film, she's in The Shadow of the Cat. 
Oh, OK. It yes. seems to be cropping I, up quite a lot. Yeah, I've seen that, and I, I think I saw that a little while ago. It's a Hammer movie. Yes, about a cat that witnesses its uh, its owner murdered and then appears to take revenge on the people. And it stars, uh, we, who we've mentioned, Andre Morel. Yes, uh, yes, he's very good in that. Yeah. It's and, and William, William Lucas. Lucas. You see, it all yeah. ties together. Quite, quite an entertaining... Quite an entertaining movie. I mean, she had a very good career. Yeah. Uh, really, when you look at, when you look down her list, um, but she doesn't have much to do in this film, yeah. so we can't really necessarily keep talking about what she does. <laughs> she does very it was little. A teensy role in it. In yeah. it now the next person to speak of is a very interesting uh, fella. Oh yes. Called Gertan Klauber. Yes. And he was Czechoslovakian uh, born and. Uh, uh, very distinctive looking, a big shock of thick black hair, yeah. big old fuzzy eyebrows, thick set. bulbous toady face. Yes, yes. Um, and basically, if you wanted a second string uh, sinister villain sidekick, <laughs> or you wanted a security guard at an uh, at an Eastern European border, <laughs> or you wanted a, a you know a henchman. Or I think Gertan Klauber was your man. He also spoke, um, uh, I can't remember, he obviously spoke Czech, mm. uh, but he was good with the dialect stuff. So yes, if you yes. wanted a proper accent to do your yes. distinctly well, Eastern European, he was, he was the guy that you wanted. Yes, yes. And interestingly enough, he appeared, some people would know him, a lot of people would know him in the, in the mainstream in Britain, even younger people, in the Blackadder. Because he oh. appeared as King George the Third in Blackadder. The oh third. yes, of the crazy Dutch, the... crazy Blackadder. Who says penguin? Yeah, yeah, penguin. <laughs> penguin obsessed. Penguin. <laughs> and that was Gerton Klauber. Uh, he had um, yes. a very long career. He's working forever in the period between about 1955 yep. and all the way up to the 21st century. Yeah. Uh, he's he's working continuously oh, in a string of backbeat the Beatles movie. Yeah, wow. As a pimp, as a pimp. Yes. Yeah. No, 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 House no. of Cards, The Bill, William Tell, the lot. You know, Inspector Morse. Morse he yeah. was in as German Man. <laughs> oh, and he's in. Is that the? That's the Michael Caine Jack the Ripper series. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's in. in. He's in. He's in Jack the Ripper, which was the two-part series with starring Michael Caine, and he's in, unsurprisingly, as. A backstreet yeah. extend immigrant, yeah. Yeah. Uh, probably wearing a leather apron. <laughs> uh, almost certainly wearing a leather apron in that quite grand, uh, or certainly seemed grand for the yeah. time, uh, miniseries yes. of Jack the Ripper. He was yes. in several James Bond outings, yeah. actually, and the original Poldark series. Oh, in, yes. In the mid-70s, oh, he was yes. also in. An excellent career. Doesn't do a lot in this... Movie. No, it's a small role. It's at the beginning, so it's set in yeah. what, the, what there is of the plot up. One, two, one, two, three, four. If the day has got me feeling blue There is always something very special I can do I think of you, my love, I think of you, anytime I feel a little low, there is something I can do 
make my troubles go. I think of you, my love. That's all I do. I always feel so lonely anytime we are apart. You know my love is for you only. You took my heart and I've loved you from, yes, I've loved you from the start. If the day has got me feeling sad, I remember all the happy moments that we had. I think of you, my love. My dreams all come true, my love. I think of you. So let's touch on the music yes. uh, then that's featured in this sh uh, movie because, as we mentioned before, it's it's supposed to be a vehicle for the small faces, but they actually probably do less in it than some of the other protagonists. Yes. So the first um, real bit of music that's featured properly in it is Kiki Dean. Yes, actually. A very, yeah, very young a, Kiki yeah, Dean. 18 years old she mm. was. Mm. Yeah, so it must be one of her first, one of her first singles. Yeah. And yeah, a nice... Quite a nice little song and sort of Baccarat very well, kind of. There's an over there's there's an overriding theme in the movie music wise in that it's all mod in the performance sort of music, uh, yeah the perform music not not the Johnny Douglas score which is no. we'll talk about separately but the pop music in it is all got that very stylish soulful groove a lot mm. of it is groove based I yeah. mean the Kiki D stuff one of the Chantel's songs in fact both of the Chantel's songs yeah. are reasonably groove based they've got that sound that mid 60s Burt Baccarat inf uh, influenced yes sound in a lot of major seventh chords yes coming into a, what chords. otherwise would have been an ordinary progression but yeah. they've lushed them out you know yes, yeah, ex extended those. them out yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely so, so yeah Kiki D and she um, this is her the beginning of what remains a very lengthy uh, successful mm. career she um a few years later the end of the 60s she had the distinction of being the first white british artist to sign to motown she signed to motown that is a distinction yeah but her career didn't really catch fire commercially she always done good stuff but it didn't really catch fire commercially until she befriended elton john and signed to his mm. rocket records yeah and she um, had her first big hit in 73 with a, an adaptation of a French song called Amoureux. Right. Um, which you'll know if you heard it, cause that, that word is not used anywhere in the song, but it should be called Another Planet or so. Right. Just another day. Another planet. It's, right, um, okay. You'll know, if you, you, you know if you heard it. It's yeah. classic in that sort of... I don't know how you describe that sort of pop music. Is that very sort of... Sort of smoothly produced, um, a bit like what sort of Barbara Dixon and people like that. Yeah, went yeah, on to oh, do yeah, yeah, yeah. In yeah, that yeah. kind of like Lost in France and that sort of stuff, you know, yeah. it's it's in that vein. And then she went on to have a massive hit as a duet with Elton John. Yeah, with the song "Don't Go Breaking, Don't go my, breaking heart, my Heart," which was which number is one the thing that she's known for, best you know? known for. And that was the first number one that either of them had had. Surprisingly, Elton John and his yeah. initial flush of fame didn't have a single... No, he, he didn't know he was one of the big 
the biggest artists yes yeah, absolutely without a shadow of a doubt. no yeah is that a huge still didn't get a number one till kiki d yeah and then he didn't get another one again till princess diana no he had had one before yeah sacrifice was uh oh was it sacrifice? was well, in 1990 that was 1990 okay. yeah that was a good 20 years into his wow. into his career and um yes and then of course the princess died candle in the wind yeah yeah and kiki d went on to perform don't go back in my heart at live aid at wembley with elton john mm. And served as one of his backing vocalists as well. And then she had a, a, another big hit in um, 81 uh, with the song Star. You know, Star, yeah, that's yeah. what they got you. Do, 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 do. That was another, yeah, another big hit. I so, never liked any of them particularly, <laughs> uh, if I'm honest. Uh, I'd never well, I like the track she sings in this, Small Town. I yeah. think it's really good. Um, well, good. Let's take the really out of that and put that yeah, just it's, it's to one side. It's, 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 it's good. Um, I, I've never particularly liked her, her other app, but interestingly enough, she was playing at Trowbridge Pump Festival. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. We mentioned that before, oh, didn't we? Yes, yeah. that's where I saw uh, Lonnie Donegan. Where you saw ago. Lonnie Donegan, and uh, Kiki D was playing there only two years ago. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Um, and I didn't see her. <laughs> but I know someone who did. Yes. And they said she was okay. Yeah. Well, I'm told she's still making, you know, putting out new stuff and still, yeah. and not, not above average. I mean, she's not content to lay back as an yeah, oldie's act. She's, yeah. uh, she's still yeah. making... Uh, no, I think that was it. I, I think that was one of the reasons she was at the Pump Festival yeah. because she's still got um, current material uh, that she does. Yeah, you know. yeah. Well, well, I was a great yeah. artist over the decades, hugely loved... Um, yeah. yeah, and a good she, singer, very good. She doesn't play a role in this other than singing her song no. and being heavily promoted. Yeah. And that's about that. Yeah. And uh, look, uh, looked at very keenly by the gentlemen who are in the bar. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. But we all know about them and teenage girls. Um, yeah. Then we've got the Chantels. The Chantels, yes. Who were um, the, the trio of uh, trio of young women who were... It was sort of a spin-off of the Lana Sisters. The Lana Sisters, yeah. Which was the um, the group that Dusty Springfield first came to prominence with, before the Springfields even. Yeah. One of the other members of the group was Iris Long, who um, by this point had rebranded herself as Riss Chantel. Riss Chantel. And yeah. she... Um, and so she was the leader of the of this trio. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they were meant to be promoted as sisters. I don't think they actually were. Um, the no, they didn't say they were the Chantel sisters, so no. uh, I think they were just yeah. They all share a haircut. Yeah, they're they're well, haircut. Know, yeah. But, um, they've they, they've all got that same uh, enormously backcombed, yeah, high big floof of that big blob of uh, yeah. It, like, it might have looked good to them at the time. It certainly yeah. doesn't carry it's with a very time. Flattering hair no. at all. I've never looked. I would say the the Supremes. They're not. Yeah, no. In terms of the sort of sharp glamour. They look that. very uh, British High Street. Yeah. <laughs> so it's so a Riss Chantel or Iris Long, Sandra Orr and Jay Adams. Yeah, were the, were the three. Great singing. Yeah, I mean, they had the vocal harmony stuff down, uh, fantastically, um, and they sing two songs in this. Mm. Um, they sing "I Think of You" and "Please Don't Kiss Me." Yes, "I Think of You." You can tell is the is the single that they want to feature because that's the one they do on the. Uh, boat yes with the djs and it's given the full cinematic treatment yeah, that yeah, particular yeah. one there is a routine to it which yes there yes, isn't yes. to most of the music and it's just literally someone standing there and singing mm. and this particular one there's definitely a let's do this in this shot mm -hmm. 
and it comes across quite well. The Please Don't Kiss Me is actually the more banging of the yeah, tunes. It's, 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 it's got a good groove. Mm. It's got a good groove. Yeah, so and it's it. featured briefly early in the film and then again later in the film. So yeah. they sort of play it not in its entirety twice. Mm. But it, it comes across really well, actually, as a bit of a... You could see that being a Northern Souls floor filler. Yeah. Well, some of them were, actually. Mm. They, they, they did have, I think, at least one of their songs was taken up on the, the Northern yeah, Souls yeah, yeah. scene. And, then, and, and you quite can imagine. rightly. They're, they're imagine. good driving beat. Yeah. Uh, those sort of chiming major sevenths that were so common in, in that style. Yeah. Uh, their harmonies are spot on. Mm. It ticks every box. It's, uh, I, I guess it's one of those things that they, the competition being as fierce as it was with so much music around, good music around, mm. that they just never really broke through, never really got no. their hit that they needed. This certainly didn't give them their hit, but we're not surprised about that because no. it didn't do anything for anybody this time. No, film. absolutely not. No, it was a wa- it was it was a time awash with talent and. Yeah. Uh, but I I thought their tracks both sounded good to yeah, me. They're fine. Um, yeah, they're fine. Um, yeah, yeah, they're, they're nicely gruesome and harmonious. Yeah, fine. Yeah. yeah. So um, then there's Mark Richardson. Yeah. Um, who I've never heard of. Yeah. Um, special guest from America, Mark Richardson. Yeah. And he does a song called "What Am I Gonna Do." Yeah. And I don't know what I'm going to do about to talk about it because I can't even remember how it goes off the top of my head. Oh, no, it's, it it's, 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 uh, it's, again, it's the same groove, same yeah. sort of idea, without the dance. It's not such a dance track. It's no. more of a ballad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but ballad with a sinuous groove, mm. it's fine. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the least outstanding or the least memorable of the tracks yeah. that we hear in it, which is why you can't remember it. Yeah. <laughs> And there was also... Oh, yeah, what, Ray Anton on the Proform. Yeah, I, I just like the fact that they're called the Proform. <laughs> that, sound, <laughs> that sounds like a painful operation that you're going to get. Um, uh, you know, something that needs to be sort of removed from you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when are they taking your Proform out? Yeah, just, uh... <laughs> oh, I don't it's know. It's make you wince. Yeah. <laughs> uh. So um, uh, I, I enjoyed his sequence, not because it was especially great, mm. but because... He kind of didn't quite look right as a pop star either. You could tell yeah. that he was hanging on to the last vestiges of his hair before it <laughs> yeah. disappeared down the sink well, well, uh, and was sort of had combed it in a particular way. to Not not a Bobby Charlton comb over. No, no, no. But, you know, it was, there was definite assistance. <laughs> yeah, definite <laughs> strategic combing, as they say. It's not, uh... And he was of a, a sort of diminutive stature but quite robustly built as well. Yeah. So, you know, and the camera angles were most... Odd, yeah, in, on him, sort of shooting up his nose and well, it's, yeah. I mean, it's the same with the small faces sequence, yeah. but that I we'll talk about the cinematography in a bit. But it, what it, was his song? Remind me. What uh, his song, his was. song was called First Taste of Love." Yeah, um, and, and it had a sort of call and response motif, which I always yeah. like in a song. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the tune was most odd. It was in a minor key. Yeah, and then sort of. You felt, oh, it's going off. They've yeah. been, oh no, they're no, all right. No, it just settles back. Down oh, it's gone up. Oh no, they're all right. So it was a sort of roller coaster <laughs> of a little tune coming in there. Um, no, I enjoyed him uh, uh, the the pro form without it actually being good. Yeah, it was his sort of. I think it was his last bite of the cherry as a as a potential pop star. He'd been a painter and decorator. Uh, his name was Len Hyrons. Was right. his, it was his real name, and the pro form was sort of his last iteration of his pop star. Efforts and it, and they, they weren't really, as far as I know, they weren't really a, a defined band. It was mm. like whoever, yeah, there, there wasn't yeah. exactly a, whoever a signed a the pro forma. Yeah, didn't sign the pro forma at all. <laughs> well, I mean, look, 
uh, he got onto a movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, More than it's not without <laughs> success. Yeah. Not without success. Yeah. People still talk about it. Um, so, yes, yeah, so there we go. So, I guess we ought to talk about the, um, the crew then. So, it's directed by Jeremy Summers. He'd made quite a few interesting movies over the, the previous few years. He first came to prominence in 63 with um, The Punch and Judy Man with Tony Hancock. He, oh, yeah, he directed yeah. that, which was when... It's generally cited as when Hancock's career started to stay. It'd been like the hugest uh, star... Well, not even comedy star, just star full star yeah. in Britain um, through the 50s and into the early 60s. But then he systematically began sort of um, separating himself from all his co-stars. And then he, perhaps foolishly, well, definitely foolishly, separated himself from his writers, Gordon and Simpson. Yeah, oh, well, that um, is Which was his lifeline gone. And so he did Punch and Judy Man with a different writer. Yeah. And it's directed by Jeremy Summers. It's, it's, I mean, it's got a good cast. I mean, it's Hancock. It's got Sylvia Sims playing his wife. It's got yeah. John Lemesura. All the usual suspects. And Jeremy Summers does quite a good job of directing it. It looks nice. It's in black and white and set in like a rainy seaside town oh, right. kind of thing. Okay. But it just goes to show that without Gorton and Simpson in particular yeah. behind him, it shows how unsympathetic the Hancock character can be. Yeah. He's, not, he's not playing a character that's a million miles away from his usual persona. Yeah. But it shows how, how unsympathetic that mm. character can be in the wrong hands. Absolutely. And... And yeah, so that but that that was Jeremy Summers' first, and it wasn't a, wasn't a success, and generally seen as the real beginning of his of his downward spiral of his career and his life. The following year, sixty four, he made Crooks in Cloisters. Oh yeah, it's a nice little film. Yeah, actually, nice little comedy film yeah. about uh, some criminals hiding out. In, yeah. It's all about criminals, isn't it? About criminals yeah, hiding yeah. out in an old abandoned good monastery cast, for very three months. Cast yeah, with uh, Bernard Cribbins. Yeah, Barbara Windsor. Fabs, yeah. Yeah, Melvin Hayes, Colin Redgrave, a young Francesca Annis. Yeah, he went on to be a big star in the seventies and eighties. Wilfred Bramble, Arnold Ridley. Yeah, Wilfred Bramble is. Yeah, yeah. That's Ronald f- Fraser. Ronald Fraser, of course. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. Yeah, a fine cast and a, and a decent, yeah. a decent comedy movie. Yeah, nice one there. And then um, did Ferry cross the maze? Ferry cross the maze with Jenny and the Pacemakers. Yeah. Yeah. So this was prior to the Dateline Diamond. That's right. I mean, sort so of, another pop film. It was film. A sort of, uh, as, as I recall, I'm not that, we'll, we'll be covering this off at some point. Yeah. It's a sort of documentary sort of style. I think it's got a touch of that at the beginning. I think it does settle yeah. down. Presentation I on it. haven't yeah. seen the whole thing yet. Yeah. I haven't seen the whole thing yet. But yeah, that's with Jerry and the Pacemakers and produced by um, Brian Epstein. Yeah. Of course. Uh, firm hand so. on the tiller yeah. of the ferry. Well, not what his firm hand was on. But um, <laughs> he... Uh, and then the same year he made, um, or oh, sixty-five anyway, same year as this. He made um, one of those uh, a shortish, one of those nearly silent comedies oh, right. uh, called San Ferriat. Yes, yeah, about uh, yeah. the comic misadventures of a bunch of British people on yeah. a boat trip to uh, to France. Yeah, and that and was decent. That's yeah, quite. And that again stars Wilfred Bramble and Barbara yeah. Windsor, and a host of Rodney Bewes is in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, what's his name from uh, Around the Horn? Hugh Paddock. Oh, the great Hugh, Hugh Paddock, Paddock yeah. and a whole bunch of people, and it's one of those movies like um, The Plank and uh, Futtock's End. Ronnie yeah. Barker made several, The, yeah, the yeah. Picnic and things like that, um, that are done with sound effects and yeah, and sound and music, yeah. but no actual no, dialogue. No dialogue. Yeah. And um, and yeah, it's quite an amusing film. What's the one with Richard Bryars? There's one. Uh, that, oh, that's uh, a Home of Your Own. A Home of Your Own. Yeah, yeah. which also has yeah. Ronnie Barker yeah. in it and a bunch of people. That's, that's very good as well. That's excellent. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, and. So Sam Ferriand is part of that 
that seam of movies in the 60s and 70s. And they're all quite nice films. And they're even fine. The Punch and Judy Man is quite, you know, a well-made and sort of engagingly directed movie. Yeah. As I remember. So it's a the perfunctory nature of his work on this. I think you can see he's not interested. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what it boils down to. Yeah. You know, if, you've, if you're given this project he couldn't make his mind up what he wanted to do with it no. which way he wanted to go and i think once Tone of it. once he decided that his indecision was decisive <laughs> then he lost interest and then it comes across in the and he goes on to have a very good career in tv yep directs a lot of the episodes of the saints yeah of course uh many other things then jason king yeah. UFOs, the protectors. Oh, so he does a lot of the ITC. Uh, yeah, Return of the Saint, Danger UXB. You know, he's 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 doing a lot of these things uh, before coming to Tenko. Ah, and he directs ten episodes of the really well acclaimed. Tenko. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, this is now in the eighties. Mm. The disastrous Albion Market. Oh dear. Sort of uh, um, EastEnders rival. Yeah, that didn't which, come off. Which uh, didn't come off. Uh, comes after they did a bit of Hannay, did a bit of All Creatures Great and Small, Howard's Way, Coronation Street, Hollyoaks, the lot. Yeah. I mean, you you name it. He was obviously seen, Bill, Brookside, seen as a safe pair of yeah. hands. But I suspect that all of that also tells you something of a journeyman. Yeah. Whose ambition to do something of real high tension and high quality yeah. went. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't become a Nick Rogue, did he? No. Or anything like that. It's um, it's nah. So yeah, a bit so yeah, disappointingly flat job on on this. Yeah, I would say, but it's a good career. I mean, that's a that's a real you know that's a real solid career. That's I, I don't career. think uh, I don't think he had trouble paying the mortgage. No, indeed, no, no, it's always working. Yeah. So the script then, Tudor Gates. Tudor Gates. Well, it's from a story by Harold. Well, let me just first of all say, Tudor Gates. What a name. Well, that's, that's a name in three quarters. Yeah. It? Tudor Gates. Well, Hi, I'm Tudor. Tudor Gates. Well, it's, it's what you put on the front of Hampton Court, I suppose. Yeah. But it's, uh, <laughs> st stop, stop the punters coming in. But it's um, but made of Tudor chipboard. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so this is a script. It's from a story by um, Harold um, Shampen. I, I keep trying to say Hal Shipman, but no, yeah, Hal Shampen. No, he keeps throwing me. Uh, and yeah. um, who um, did band, who wrote, wrote and produced Band of Thieves, yeah. who also um, was music associate on Play It Cool. Oh, yeah, with Billy Fury. With Billy Fury before yeah. that. And then wrote and executive produced Live It Up and Be My Guest yeah. around about this time as well. And uh, so he came up with the story, but the, but the, the script itself was written by... Yeah, by I mean, I would, say, I would say it doesn't surprise me on the Play It Cool is mm. a similarly vased, veiled script. Be My Guest, uh, uh, again, is no more substantial than this. No. Both of them, I would say, infinitely more successful films yes. in terms of entertainment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll come to Play It Cool, but Play It Cool has its limitations. It certainly doesn't have great acting on the part of its main oh, protagonist. No, oh, well, yes, that's where you need other people around. Yeah, um... uh, but uh, it's much more entertaining than this. Yeah. Uh, but... The, the writer Tudor Gates, yeah. you can see again a little bit where this might fall down because his experience prior to this was purely TV. Yeah. You know, he's got a host of TV credits on mainly stuff I've not heard of. Yeah. Uh, that, not to say it was insubstantial or that it was that, good, but it was mainly one episode or two episodes here and there of TV. Yeah. And it kind of 
you know, he'd, he'd made a film called The Man With Two Faces the year before, but it kind of shows that he wasn't a very inexperienced screenplay yeah. writer for movies. Yeah. So I think we were saying earlier before we recorded that it feels like an, e an episode of yeah. a TV cop show it does. rather than a full-length yeah. feature movie. It's got TV pacing, not, not movie pacing. And he goes on to continue with a career in TV. Yeah. You know? Well, he made a few movies. He, um, he was one of the many co-writers on Barbarella, Roger oh, Baddin. Which I think was Terry Southern was the main credited writer, yeah. a famous American writer. But he, um, but it then went through a lot of hands. One of which, but again, Barbara hasn't really got a script as much as a sort of guideline a happening series of things happening. Yeah, isn't it? yeah. yeah. I mean, Barbarella is is all about Jane Fonda, really. Isn't yeah, it? absolutely. Well, no, no shame in that. But his most substantial film work was that he scripted Hammer's Karnstein trilogy, the, the um, Camilla, the lesbian vampire uh, series. They made, so the vampire lovers with, um, uh, yeah. with Ingrid Pitt oh, and, um, Ingrid, yeah. and Madeline Smith. And the equally fabulous Madeline Smith. Two, oh. two gorgeous, uh, gorgeous women of the era. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. So, uh, Madeline a, Smith, who's uh, uh, actually a member of the Talking Pictures discussion group. Is she really? Yeah, yeah she's, but she's, she's much talked about on the yes. uh, Talking Pictures <laughs> discussion group. And every now and then, when people are going, whoa, Madeline Smith, whatever, she pops up and goes, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so, probably not in that stupid voice. No. But, you know, she, she's very nice. She's a lovely, lovely lady. Yes, I'm um, sure. And uh, comes across very well in her uh, yeah. correspondence with her adoring fans on, well, on Talking Pictures. There we jolly well, that's always That's always hard to do. Well, so, and, but there were, having made three films, Vampire Lovers was a big hit. Mm -hmm. and sort of move their stuff into more overtly sexy, although they'd always be right. very sexual movies, but yeah. um, but more overtly yeah, uh, yeah. sexy movies. And they followed up with Lust for a Vampire, which went even further in that direction. And then uh, a very good film called Twins of Evil, Twins with of um, Peter Cushing and the Collinson sisters, who were uh, Playboy's first twin centrefolds. Oh, we're, wow. we're in Twins of Evil. That's a good one, actually. That's, 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 okay. a, that's a good one. And, um, yeah, that's sort of the peak of his, yeah. of his film scripting. And I seem to recall, I've seen, I think I've seen all of them, but Twins of Evil's the one that really sticks in my mind. Right. And, that's, and that's an entertaining film. And of Hammer of that era, it's, it's one, of their better, one yeah. of their better ones. So we touched on the music from Johnny Douglas, who does the soundtrack as opposed to the pop music. Yes. And really good, yeah. Mm. Um, his, his yeah, it's a nice incidental soundtrack isn't yeah. it at odds with the um well not exactly at odds but different to the the main pop music that's seen performed by the the pop turns it's got a much mm. more jazzy jazz it's jazz um, uh, oriented yeah. yeah yeah um and kind of in the style with the flute and everything it's probably trying to invoke the ipcress file which is around about the same period or which was yeah, first maybe. i wonder well, Ipcress file was the 65, same year. Same yeah, year. So, so I wonder which uh, came first. I don't know. Because they both got that sort of moody, flute-orientated yeah. jazz yeah. Uh, style. Yeah. And Johnny Douglas didn't do that many more film soundtracks, but he did do a couple of quite interesting movies. He did the mu music for the railway children. Oh, yeah. Jenny Agatha again. Yeah. Um, and... Lionel he, Jeffries directing. Lionel Jeffries directing, yeah, of course. Um, and very famous. Film. And then he also did, the following year, did the mu uh, music for the film Dulcimer. Oh, that's a good film. Yeah. With a very horribly disappointing ending. Yeah, it's very <laughs> unsettling and weird ending. It's, um, but yeah, with uh, John Mills and Carol White. Carol White. The, the Battle of Carol White, yeah. The late Carol White. Yeah. Yeah, um, 
Yeah, that's an interesting movie. He did the music. It's a really nice movie, Dulcimer, uh, yeah. and and it always saddens me that, that it has to end the way it does because yeah. it doesn't seem to need to do that, and then it does and ruins the whole. Thing. Yeah, I had the same feeling we were talking about earlier of um, Heaven's Above. Yeah, Peter because that's mm. a, a lovely film with lots to and, and lots to say and, and quite you know quite deep in lots of ways film, and then it's just got this stupid ending that go comes out yeah. of nowhere. And again, spoils the film for yeah. me. Yeah, it's, yeah, no, I agree on both. Uh, you know, it's, it's actually quite a thoughtful movie with lots mm. to say. And then it doesn't and, have, and a really have such a sensitive performance from Peter Sellers. They yeah. just, the whole thing sort of backflips the last ten minutes, and it's just yeah. really weird. It's a ridiculous ending. I have mean, exactly yeah. the same feeling about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, um, we were talking about the, the weird way this film is shot and everything, and particularly mm. the music sequences, mm. where, you know, especially in the small faces uh, bits and... Ray Anton and the Proform. And the Proform. And the Proformers. Um, you never get a decent broad shot of the band. It's no. a, and the cameras are sort of forced right up, right, literally face on. Hmm. And that was me uh, putting my hand right up to uh, yes, that, face. That yeah, quite alarming. Yeah, yeah well, I'll do it again if you like. So, <laughs> no, but a, it's not comfortable to watch. And B, you're not getting any sense of the, the musicians playing. And I, hmm. and, it's, and I was thinking, who is this cinematographer? That, and I don't know whose decision it was, whether it was Jeremy Summers' idea or um, the director of photography, who was one Stephen Dade. Um, and I thought this guy, because I thought it'd be sort of along the lines of the guy who did um, Six Five Special. Mm. Yeah, who hadn't done... You know, hadn't done enough of it, yeah. just didn't understand yeah. the idiom. This guy, Stephen Dade, was really quite prolific. I mean, we're not always talking about the greatest movies ever made, but he always worked and had done a lot of movies prior to this. And he did Dentist on the Job, it's easy one with Bob Monkhouse. Mm. Um, man who finally died of Stanley Baker and Peter Cushing mm. in 63. But the film that he's probably most famous for, and probably the most famous film that he made, was the year before he made Zulu. Which is gorgeous. Which is shot. gorgeously shot. A brilliant movie. Looks lovely. Looks excellent. What happened? You know, How not... did it go from Zulu to... Was he just pissed off he's working on a small pop Zulu film? Zulu was a good film. This film was a rubbish film. Yeah. That's basically all I can see. I mean... You, he, he clearly had no interest in it. Yeah. Um, maybe, also, there is a distinction between the way Kiki D is shot, yeah. the Chantelles are shot, and the way that the boys are shot in the film. Yeah. So it's almost as though he's looking at it and going, they're not interesting enough looking, yeah. so I'm going to have to do some weird up-the-nose shot. Yeah. Um, because if you look on the, the Kiki D ones, they're still that upward sort of thing. Yeah. But the Chantelles and Kiki D are both shot from broad as yeah. well, so you can actually see them, uh, you know, as human beings. The 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 men are not shot that way. Mark Richardson's shot from sort of behind. Yeah, quite he's also on the side, sort of behind, isn't he? Yeah. Side and behind, and and they're obviously struggling. I think also the other thing in there on those live performances. Mm. I think from one of the panning shots, there looks like there's only about twenty people mm. in the room. And then they have loads and loads of screaming teenagers for the next sort of thing. I think what happened was it was shot at an actual Radio London yeah. event. Um, but they did the other stuff. They must yeah, have done it the, close. Yeah, and I, and I think maybe there were space restrictions or something. Um, or perhaps they chopped in the close-up shots afterwards. Maybe they weren't satisfied with what they put Well, I think the they night. did a broad pan yeah. so that they could show, as you say, the, the Radio London event there with mm. all the screaming people... 
But then to get the proper footage, they had to do it in a confined yeah. environment where they had about 20 people. Yes. So the atmosphere between the two, I suspect, did match. And it may be that it, that accounts for the weird, weird way that they're focused Yeah, on. maybe they're making the best of what they... Maybe they just couldn't do a broad shot without making it really obvious that yeah. they were not in the same room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that could well be yeah. it. But it's really odd and not comfortable to watch. No. Not comfortable to watch Badly shot. I mean, it's, you know, it's a bit like shooting a, a tap dance and not showing their feet. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it was, it's very odd. The so, only thing worth mentioning before we sign off, because I think we are think pretty we much get to the end of this, this. <laughs> uh, is there some great, for those people who want to spot them, there are great London locations right across yes. the film. So yes, yes, the, yes. the robbery comes from Hatton Garden, and yes. that is uh, shown on the on the road signs. Yeah, and of course, a few years ago, at the time of recording, there was the famous Hatton Garden uh, robbery. Yeah. Uh, only, only quite recently. Yeah, as was the primitives. The film, the primitives, yeah. was also that was a big talking point, yeah. wasn't it, at the time? There's Soho in yeah. evidence. There's Waterloo, Victoria, Trafalgar. Yeah. Yeah. Lots and lots of great London locations. So if you're a, a fan of that, um, I'm not saying it's worth watching the movie to see them, but they're they're all there. You even see an actual police box. Not yes, as hard. It's an actual yeah, yeah. an actual proper working yeah. police box in the background yeah. at one point as well. Oh, incidentally, the final gig, sorry, is is at the Rank Ballroom in Watford. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So um, I've got the end of my notes. Lots of talent, but feels like nobody can really be bothered. And I just don't feel there's a great deal of enthusiasm from anyone making the movie. Yeah, it just feels like everyone making it was doing it, going through the motions at best, or finding it a chore at worst. Yeah, and it's just a disappointment, and especially when you consider it's not. In some ways, it's not dissimilar from from Band of Thieves but Band of Thieves is made by a bunch of people who clearly wanted to do it yeah. and were clearly having fun doing it they enjoyed it you could see that the, you could see that they enjoyed that movie this one's a real throwaway job and uh, the care and attention isn't there no um, and it's a vehicle that just doesn't really do anybody any particular favours it doesn't enhance anybody's career so I would say of the movies that we've so far seen Dateline Diamonds is towards the lower end of the, yes, of the scale. I'm not saying that it's going to be right at the bottom of this particular <laughs> scale. I think we can almost certainly... I can think of one or two more which are worse than yes, this. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, even just off the top of my head. Yes. But this is certainly... You've got two examples in this iteration of contrasting fortunes of two... Films which ostensibly should have been very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in terms of their entertainment. They're not on similar, exactly similar lines, but they're, they're similar ideas and they should have been just as entertaining as one another and one is, one isn't. <laughs> so that's it for this particular podcast. In our next instalment, we have a film we've already mentioned and it is from 1962, Some People. It's an unusual film because it doesn't feature an actual pop artist mm. in it, a name pop artist, but it does fit our criteria because it features pop music as an integral part and youth culture. Mm. Uh, it's very much aimed at youth culture as yes. well and filmed in Bristol, Bristol, which for us is particularly interesting because we are here in the southwest, broadcasting to you from the southwest of England. Yes. So please do look up our previous podcasts, which were the Young Ones and the Six Five Special. Mm -hmm. 
and Matt is here with the details of where you can find us as well. Yes, so if you uh, want to find us on Twitter, we're on Twitter at at BPMOACA. BPMOACA. BPMOACA, as it's possibly coming known in the playgrounds and youth clubs up and down the country. And uh, also similarly on Facebook, we're BPMOACA on Facebook. And we've got an email address that I'll include in the show notes because I can't remember it off the top of my head. Uh, and unfortunately, neither can I. And no, no, no. So at least we've both gone uh, blank at the same blank time. at the same time. So also, if you like us, uh, please uh, like and subscribe us on your podcast provider, iTunes yeah. or whatever you're listening to it on. Um, if you don't like us, just, just yeah, just definitely don't say anything. We, just, yeah, we don't. We, we don't need the bad press. No, no. Like I'm not we've got broad enough shoulders, bit, but we, a little bit of good press. But we yeah, 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 yes. Anyway, that's it from us today. And I've been Matt Bragg. And I'm still Gavin Lazarus. And join us next time for another edition of Britpop Movies of a Certain Age. Britpop Movies of a Certain Age.
Not so much weasels ripped my friends. <laughs> Smurf broke me stroke. Oh, <laughs>